All right, welcome everybody to another Break the Rules stream. I'm your host, Lef Poliakov, Lefpo on Twitter, and today is our Euro Trip stream. We are talking all about Europe, and we have some amazing guests lined up for you today. We have, of course, back with us the great Alexander Bard. It's a great pleasure to have you back, my friend. And uh, we also have a lot of new guests over here. So we have we have with us, well, uh, we have with us over here uh, Gareth Millward, who is a Welcome Trust Fellow at the University of Warwick Center for the History of medicine and your research focuses on the rhetoric rhetoric around the sick note and medical certification in britain and the foundation of the nhs of the present day and we also have ronan mccray professor of constitutional and european law at the university of college london and of course we also have with us the great giovanni panacchietti joining us and we have martin k big fan of alexander joining us as well and we have andrej and andrej we are definitely going to work out what exactly is going on with the sound here because i want the sound to work properly but uh for those who don't know andrej he uh, he uh, studied studied math at the university of warsaw and former uh, professor in the usa and japan and a british and polish citizen and resident of japan so uh konnichiwa andrej thank you so much for coming in and we are going to start this talk talking about uh well i want to go to everybody and first ask them what is it that they're specifically focusing on today just in general so that people who are not as wrapped into what you guys are doing have a better idea and number two when you think of uh, your particular place in europe your particular country in europe what is a phrase or a word or whatever you want that first comes to mind and then what comes to mind first when you think of europe in general so i would love to start this off with uh, ronan so ronan go for it my friend thank you so much for being here oh uh, thanks very much for having me um got an interesting question so um so i have to remember what you should do <laughs> so when i um I, oh yeah my my work um so I teach uh, law, so uh, mainly European Union law. Um, so you know, for your listeners, the European Union has is basically a legal system. It covers well, it's almost like federal uh, law in the United States, but with a kind of more narrow range of topics. But you know, European Union covers a lot of economic stuff, employment law, environmental law. Um, I do specialism in um, religion and law. So what's the relationship between religion and the state? Um, what are the limits on religion necessary in liberal democracies? And I do that in the context of Europe. Um, I, so in terms of what I think of, what comes to mind when I think of Europe, that's a very good question. Um, so I, I'm originally from Ireland. Um, I've lived in a few other places, but I'm now in London. So I'm in the position of being from a country that's in the EU, but is now living in a country that's just left it. Um, and I think for me growing up, it's interesting, it's probably specific to Ireland, but to me growing up, Europe meant modernity. It meant kind of liberal liberalism. It meant um, secularism, like, you know, uh, Ireland is now a very liberal country, but it was not, and it's largely because of the European Union that it is. Like uh, women had to leave, women were fired from the Irish civil service upon marriage until we joined the European Union. Married women were not allowed work in the Irish civil service. And the European Union changed that and they changed a lot of things. So for me, I think that's what Europe meant. That's not what it means to a lot of people across the world. There's a lot of people for whom it means colonialism, There's a lot of people for whom it's the old world, 
high rigid, rigid and stuff. But for, for Irish people, it has meant liberalism, secularism, and it's also meant a transcending of a difficult relationship with Britain, where we now, instead of being locked in a very historically angry bilateral relationship with Britain, we now kind of, we've got over that and we can move on by being part of the European Union. Oh, I don't do sales pitches, <laughs> please. Uh, yeah, I'm working on a new book, but because it isn't released, I can't promote it, thank God. But uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's a good time to write. Uh, a lot of my friends who are writers are obviously writing it. I was planning to write a new book anyway, so John Sadek is not planning to release a new book next year, 2022. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm in Scandinavia. This is like, this is experimental like hell because... Uh, Obviously, Norway and Finland are competing with Taiwan and South Korea and New Zealand and Australia for most successful strategy when it comes to minimizing the damage done by COVID-19. Although, the, you know, then Sweden stands out as the experimental. Okay, but let's take the social costs into perspective as well. So we let a few more people die that would die anyway sooner or later mm -hmm. and see if we can get away with it. Uh, that means the Stockholm Stock Exchange is probably better than anybody else in the world. <laughs> we have more corpses than the Finns and the Norwegians have. But the Scandinavians are huge to having these kind of experiments. That's why I'm, I'm all for Britain splitting up. And finally, the British Empire not only did Brexit, but will go down the drain and Scotland mm. can go independent and Scotland and Ireland can join Scandinavia and go civilized and England can stay with itself. I think we'd all be better off that way. We can do comparative studies between these sort of closely related cultures. That's why Scandinavia is a great place to be, by the way. So yeah, I'm, fi I'm fine here. I mean, I, I love traveling. Uh, this was my first winter in 30 years in Scandinavia. I always go and get a fucking tropical villa somewhere and stay in Bali or Brazil or something in the winter, which may, may, makes the Scandinavian winters much more bearable. Like any Canadian would do the same thing. But uh, this time, Florida. Yeah, hey, there you go, Canadian. <laughs> yeah, so this time I had to stay, um, made it really exotic, went to the very north and, and dug into the dark and, and the snow and, and, you know, and everything and did the proper real Scandinavian winter this year. So. But I'm, I'm finished with it now. I'm, I'm dying to go traveling again and obsessed with vaccinations and hope they work and I can get a vaccination passport and everything can get back to normal as quickly as possible. When it comes to the European Union, it's a disaster, right? Israel got it. The UK got it. Uh, we don't get the vaccines out to people in, in Europe. So the European Union itself will have a third wave coming this summer of even more people dying, even more coronavirus, even more COVID-19, even more mental breakdowns, even more divorces, even more little cute restaurants going down the drain and things. Uh, so we will have a mess. And today, on top of that, Denmark and Norway decided to ban the most common vaccine as well for being fair, fair for blood clots or something. That's their decision. But when it comes to the distribution of vac uh, vaccines, uh, yeah, most of the vaccines are produced and invented by European Union countries, including the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine. And still the European Union can't get their fucking shit together. We have no vaccines. We're going to die because of it. And it's all Brussels' fault. I'm for Swexit next. Let's do as the UK did. Let's leave. Well, now I'm going to go to Gareth, your twin. Notice uh, the uh, outfit going on here. That's very, that's very interesting. 
very coincidental. And also speaking of vaccines, uh, I mean, Gareth, you're really uh, you're really uh, busy when it comes to uh, the research and finding out what exactly is crackalacking today with vaccination and uh, with uh, Europe. But before we get to that, what in general would you say does Europe mean to you as well as uh, where you are uh, currently living? Well, I think my my kind of views of Europe are probably quite similar to Ronan's in the sense that it, it you, the European Union kind of represented a bit more of kind of modernity and uh, a sort of a shift away from older power structures. But I think that might be rather than because I was in Ireland during the uh, during the past few years, uh, just my generation. I'm in my mid thirties, so I think there was certainly a sort of a, an idea that the European Union was uh, comparatively Alexander anyway. Uh, a more liberal, more um, socially progressive kind of um, bulwark against some of the more reactionary right-wing um, kind of uh, politics that was uh, that was really taking root uh, in in Britain. So I do hope if you do get your Swexit, it is uh, it is uh, driven forward by social democrats rather than uh, the hard right. Um, but I think for me, um, my 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 research at the moment is is really on sort of. Uh, medical certification and what that says about the British welfare state. And you can't really do the history of the British welfare state without understanding what Britain is uh, relative to other countries. And once you get sort of, once you, you know, I, I do post-war history. So it starts off with the sort of, how does Britain negotiate its place in the world uh, when it's no longer the head uh, of the empire? And how does it come to terms with the fact that it is one nation among many and that it might be a good idea to get along with the French um, and I, I guess as you as you move forward, obviously you, you kind of get into 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 sort of uh, sort of the, the reaction against that to a certain extent. Um, but my previous uh, my previous research was on British vaccination policy. So uh, <laughs> the past twelve months, where everything in the news has been about vaccines and about sick leave, have been very tiring. I did not become a historian to be relevant. I wanted to just sit in my little dusty archives and do stuff over there. Uh, but apparently the world has gone absolutely batshit. And now I must I must have opinions. So I have a few opinions. Maybe we'll get onto them later. Absolutely. And uh, we have uh, Martin K., one of our uh, great patrons. Martin K., how are you, my friend? And the uh, same question for you. Uh, you are living in uh, the uh, Norway right now, right? Best country in the world, yes. Best country in the world. Well, you do have a lot of oil, and uh, that does make life pretty pretty sweet for a lot of people there, at least from what I saw. But uh, let me know what you think of Norway. It's also what's uh, more messing than... us up, but that's a different case. Well, we can uh, we can certainly get to that as well. But just uh, let me know, like other than best country in the world, do you have anything else to add about Norway? And what would you like to say about the uh, European Union or about Europe in general? I used to be a fan of the European Union. I also used to be a libertarian. I'm neither anymore. I'm a strong nationalist. I really don't like the EU as it's shaped right now. And I think the whole Europe is a mess, basically. It's going to be a shit show for a long time. And we've just seen the start of it with Brexit and uh, Belgium. Yeah. Well, we're definitely uh, going to get into that. But uh, last but not least, we have Andrej. Welcome back, Andrej. I think everything's working out really good with the sound right yeah. now. So uh, please uh, let us know the yes, uh, know. same I thing. Go on. Yes, I mean, actually, I worked out what happened. I had the YouTube 
uh, on at the mm. same time as this room. So <laughs> there I we go. So the <laughs> Hap happens so to the best the, of us. Uh, eco was yes. Um, well, okay. I I I am not sure what to say because um, you know uh, perhaps you it was it it wasn't clear, but I actually lived for uh, after I maybe I should say something about uh, more precisely about my background because after uh, I immigrated from Poland uh, in 1968 that is when I was uh, I was about 15 and then I uh, emigrated to the United to to, to 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 England to the UK and I became a British citizen so I'm a British citizen uh, now and um, then um, in uh, after I got my doctorate at Oxford I uh, went to Japan. I, my, my, wife is, my wife is Japanese and I lived in Japan. And after that, I worked for something like several years as a um, associate professor at, in the United States. And then I came, went back to Japan. So actually, I spent probably the largest, well, uh, more than 20, something like 25 years in Japan, maybe more, uh, depending on how you connect different pieces. Uh, so uh, actually, I've only so I haven't lived that much in the European Union. I have only been in Poland. I've been living in Poland for ten years now. It's ten years that have um, and uh, of course when I uh, before I left Britain in 1980, of course I remember the the referendum, uh, the EU referendum, and uh, at that time I was uh, I, I was actually in favor of um, uh, of the, of uh, the EU. Uh, I became much more skeptical later, and um, I began to, and of course, it's gradually um, grown. So um, again, my perspective is somewhat different because I have, my experience is, of course, I, I, I go constantly to Europe. I, I have um, uh, a cousin in, who, in Germany and so on. Um, so, I mean, I do know it, but I don't have so much, uh, um, say, my relative viewpoint is from sort of um, one partly Japanese perspective and the current Polish perspective, which again is uh, somewhat different from being in the West. So, um, so I mean, uh, I would I would say I'm not, I am not uh, never completely sure about what is going to happen in the future. I'm not one into predicting the future and so on. My view of the European Union is actually now very very skeptical. I believe that. It's got to a stage where I believe it's it's, it's likely to. Well, I, I mean, you know, people who are very fans of the European Union don't uh, very much don't like any comparisons with the Soviet Union. And I would say, well, that's of course I don't. I'm not comparing. I'm not comparing. Uh, uh, there are very very important differences, but I would say that the, the, what 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 um, it, it actually reminds me a lot the current situation about the process that uh, happened in Eastern Europe and in particularly in the, in, the, in the Soviet Union. That is the initial enthusiasm, the form, the creation of uh, the the gradual disappearance of it. That, I mean, not not counting anything, you know, not including, I'm not talking about any, any violence and so on. And then, um, uh, and gradually the formation of a bureaucracy that now wants to perpetuate itself, its main and of course, there are still, you know, it's still relatively early stage. There are still many people who believe in some uh, 
European ideal, which I, I myself tend to think as utopian, just like the, but of course we are not yet at the point where we can we can definitely say, in my opinion, that it's how it's going to work out. Uh, I think people never realized, and of course, you know, from the Polish perspective, um, the situation is different uh, because, of course, right now the majority of the population here is still strong, strongly in favor of the European Union. Uh, they believe that they benefited from it. This is changing, and I believe the process is only one way. So I think that my view is that um, I think the same is true elsewhere. I cannot see. I, however, of course, what's happening is the kind of the same the kind of inertia that um, emerges. There are more and more people for whom, uh, like in uh, the UK, for whom um, firstly there are people who benefit from it. Then there are people for whom leaving would actually in turn their lives upside down. Hmm. And so that actually would um, mean that there is a lot of um, already uh, sort of support, which is an unenthusiastic support. The support which uh, of the kind that where people think leaving would be more more of a problem than staying. And I think the yes. actual... So this is what I would say is uh, right now the, the stage we're in. But how long it can go on like that, that I cannot say. I think it's, I don't think it will last 70 years. Hmm. But it, it, but I think it is uh, it's, it's sort of right now in the it could be quite a long. Well, I want I want to bring up the uh, main point of discontention right now that I am seeing, where uh, let's say uh, Gareth, you are in favor of having more uh, social democrat uh, uh, leadership in the EU, and you see far right elements sprouting up right now, which uh, concern you. And uh, Martin, you are in the other direction where you would see concern from the uh, social democrats, or if you can elucidate a little bit for us, what do you see happening down the road that concerns you? Uh, I'm just seeing the deterioration of civil society as we know it in so many ways. The economic problems are going to get worse and worse. And then the immigration problem it's going to come back at the forefront with immense force, I think. And it's going to be very unfortunate for many immigrants and also the people living here. And I think we're going to divide up into much more clan-like small states with high level of civil disorder for many years, basically. That's what and, I'm uh... seeing. I'm not saying it's going to start next year or a year mm. after that, but it's in my lifetime, and I'm 36, so yeah. And uh, Gareth, do you agree with this? And I would love to uh, ask this as well to Ronan, since you've been looking at the EU, and uh, Alexander. So uh, Gareth, uh, go first, brother. Yeah, well, it's not so much that I want more social democrats in the EU. I, I think, you know, that there's there's a legitimate range of opinions across all, all the political spectrums. My, my main issue with the way that the Brexit debate was held in Britain was that the people that were pushing for it the hardest were the people who basically were the ones that thought they were going to benefit from having a low regulation um, closed economy um, that had lower taxation and had nothing to do with maintaining any form of welfare state. There's not so much that you need more social democrats in the EU. I, I, I'm aware that there are other countries other than Britain where there are plenty of social democrats going on and my, my political allegiances are more towards uh, the center left, and therefore that's just um, that's just my sort of personal preference. But there are there are of course plenty of pl plenty of, uh, of political opinions 
Uh, As an American, by the way, I'm not clear what exactly center-left is, because our left and our right may be very different from yours. Yes, okay. Well, I mean, I'm I think anyway, it will depend on it will depend on your your particular your particular viewpoint. I tend to believe that um, paying a little bit more tax than we do at the moment and having a robust education, police, um, uh, health system that provides a minimal not a minimal safety net but a decent safety net to give everybody the opportunity to succeed in a capitalist economy is on the whole a good idea. Obviously. Your mileage may vary. You might have different opinions on that. It's not really my kind of uh, position to to sway you one way or the other. But um, uh, yeah, that's what that's what I mean by social democracy. I'm talking about sort of the sort of the the tradition uh, in in Britain that's perhaps embodied by um, the sort of the uh, the sort of the soft left wing of the Labour Party, I guess, if you need to put labels on that. And uh, this may be, again, the point of contention of uh, some people thinking that this mixed together with the immigration situation that's in Europe right now would result in instability. I would love to go to Ronan and then to Alexander. Uh, Before please, that, if you can... just... Yes. Well, it's interesting you point that out because I feel that some, some people have said that it's, it's almost as if American domestic politics are now starting to almost like colonize and ironically enough colonize uh, the European domestic uh, political situation in terms at least of um, the way that activism and so forth has been spread. It's largely like you see this weird Americanization of politics around the world. So I don't know if that's very much so. Yes. Yeah. And another thing too, I would ask before we move on to the panel would be, do you notice that there is a difference of, um, national character when it comes or rather regional character when it comes to the attitudes of the European Union. So we have a Scandi over here. We have um, we have people who are products of the British Commonwealth who are more in favor of the EU. We have, um, you know, whether it's Ireland or Britain or so forth. And we have people who are Eurosceptics who are more Slavic, uh, Scandinavian, Mediterranean. So I wonder, do you feel that those differences play a role in the attitudes towards the EU or is that just um, more of like an old world distinction that maybe should be, I don't know, um, bracketed or so forth? I can speak for Norway. We voted no twice. Last time in 1994, it was a quite decisive victory and it uh, pushed to the forefront some like farmer you can't really place them left or right, but uh, very much the outskirts farmers party went up to like 20 points, which they're back at now, which says something. They're a very populist party too. And uh, I think uh, the general sentiment in Norway is very much pro-EU in the media, academia, and so on. But uh, when you come to the countryside and regular people, not so much. And I also think many of the immigrants are not so pro-EU. We have many Eastern European immigrants. They're not pro-EU, except for the ability they had to move here. Because Norway is, even if we're not a member, we do actually implement more EU law than basically any other EU country. So there's an asterisk to our non-membership. And that goes for Norway, Switzerland, a couple of the other countries. Uh, that's under the Schengen agreements and US agreements, which makes us part of the market and also immigration and basically any kind of 
bureaucracy laws that the EU pushes and our governments are usually the first to accept them and implement them. Interesting. So I want to go to uh, Ronan right now. This, uh, even in the chat, you can see the sentiments of people is that Europe is committing suicide. And uh, I'm curious, so what you basically think of this uh, discontention that people are having and whether you agree with Gareth. And uh, then we're going to go to Alexander. Well, so I would, um, the comparison to the USSR, I think, I think if you say, well, apart from the totalitarianism and the violence and the coercive nature of the USSR, EU reminds me of it is a little strange because the totalitarian coercive nature were the def definitional characteristics of the USSR. So it's, I mean, once you say, apart from all that, the EU really reminds me of the USSR, I don't know what then is reminding you of the USSR in the EU. But, um, you know, look, the EU has problems. Um, the Eurozone is a big problem. It's not fully integrated and it needs to be more integrated if it's going to work or it may fall apart. There is a big problem. The EU is clashing with the Polish and Hungarian governments about judicial independence. That's a big threat to the European Union. But overall, and I'm not saying the European Union will last forever because countries often do things that <clears throat> are not in their long-term interests. But the, I think the real issue is that Europe faces a lot of problems, climate change, migration, things like that that are cross-border. And the ability, the problem is because because many European countries had an outsized role in world history, like France and Britain and Spain, they don't realize now that they're quite small. You know, Germany is 80 million people. India has over a billion. All the countries in Europe are countries that are small or don't know that they're small. They, if And if, you know, the EU is quite a, it has one identity as a kind of post-national idealistic project, which I think has faded a little bit. But also the energy, uh, is based on the reality that in a, in a tough world, no European country will have any influence if it goes out on its own. But together, because actually the EU is still the biggest single market in the world, for, for instance, the default rules for producing products in the world are EU rules, because if you want, it, EU is the largest single market. No country will have the ability to, uh, to for instance, legislate to, um, to force Google to pay um, proper uh, money to journalists for content on their site. You can't do that alone. Ireland could never regulate Google alone because Google would tell Ireland to get lost. Well, Google can't tell the European Union to get lost. Now there's lots of problems with the European Union. It has a bureaucracy, but of course states have self-perpetuating bureaucracies too. It has problems. Its legislative processes are very rigid and difficult to change the laws once they're in place. But the Euro European Union gives countries, particularly small countries, but also even mid-sized countries, an ability to influence the course of world affairs that they just don't have on their own. That, does, that doesn't mean it will last because, I mean, look, the Austro-Hungarian Empire was probably in the interests, you know, if you were, if you lived in Slovakia and in, in 1910, you, you had 70 years of misery in store for you after the fall of the Habsburg Empire, but it still fell apart. So, you know, these thing, things happen. Maybe the European will fall apart, but I don't think it's a co it's a it's a coercive project. Britain has left the European Union of its own free will. There's been no Budapest 1956. There's been no uh, 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 Prague 1968 like <laughs> attempts in the European Union to keep it. It's a voluntary union of states who wish to work together in their own self-interest. It's not perfect, 
but it's the best option the European states currently have. That's what I would say. Uh, so thank you, Ronan. Yeah. No, that's uh, that's really well said. And now we're going to go to Alexander. Alexander, do you agree with Ronan? And also, do you agree with your twin brother on the side over here? I don't think European voters care about what Ronan just said. I don't think they care at all. Uh, I oh. think if, if you look at the global map today, uh, the winners are Singapore, Dubai. I think the old age of empires is an old European romantic fantasy. I think Austria-Hungary here is a fitting model actually for where the European Union is at today. It's like a loose federation of boring, tedious, expensive bureaucrats who come back and say, we did a deal with Google that some journalists will get paid. But do I care? No, I don't care. I don't care at all. The thing is that I care about Singapore and Dubai because they're winning models. I care about Estonia and Slovenia possibly being Singapore's and Dubai's in Europe. And even those small countries see less benefits for the European Union than other people do. Having said that, though, as things are right now, for example, in Scandinavia, Finland and the Baltic countries will definitely stay the European Union because they're closely aligned with Germany historically against Russia. This is like a map issue here. That's why they have the euro. That's why they're much more integrated with the European Union. And in the future, sort of German-French alliance where Germany and France promise never go to war with one another, countries that are closely aligned culturally with Germany and France can create a new union of some kind. When it comes to me sitting in Sweden, though, already now, it turns out, and this is like, this is not even in the news yet, because the news is just corona, corona, corona. But this last fall, uh, the European Union clubbed through a new budget where they start taxing European Union citizens directly without anybody having a say in that at all. Now, when Brussels start taxing people directly, this looks like madness to me. Uh, when, when, when the sort of, say, is being created in Europe right now, when the, when the sort of pressure is being created out there among voters and people out there, where it's just like, and when Brexit won't mean that England will not fall down. Yes, it's a hassle right now. Of course it would be. Everybody knew that. But England's not going to go down the drain. England will probably open up to India, go back to the British Commonwealth and do well. And if England does well, that's terrible news for Brussels. It's terrible news for this storytelling that the European Union has to stand together because without it, we have no negotiating power. Well, nobody negotiated with the European Union anyway, because it's lazy, it's old, it's slow, bureaucratic, tedious, and expensive. Everything you don't want an empire to be. So besides that, there are the enormous pressures inside of Europe. Europe today is essentially north or south of the Alps. North of the Alps, all the productivity is in the sense that there is a tech sector today in Europe, in, in, in the sense that there's innovation, in the sense that there's fintech, biotech, everything. It's all happening in Germany, Scandinavia, Holland. That's Northern Europe, which basically where Spanish and Italian engineers are moving now in masses because they want to have a job, right? Italy and Spain, nothing happens. It's just tourism economy. Greece, what is Greece? Greece is like you put a feta cheese on a table with blue and white cloth on it. They have no innovations in that country since they invented that. They haven't had a single innovation in Greece over the past uh, 2,000 uh, years. To, man, uh, I'm getting pissed uh, off right now. Um, yeah, yeah, Italy, is, Italy is the second biggest exporter in the Eurozone. What? Per capita, Italy is the second biggest exporter in the Eurozone. Northern Italy I, is a powerhouse economy. That's yeah, just I, I, no, I know, just legal I know. Exports, Wait a second, the... <laughs> wait a second. I know that. It's also a drain in Southern Italy. And right now, Swedish yeah. taxpayers are going to discover over this year that they're going to pay billions and billions of dollars during the corona pandemic, although they're running huge state budget, negative budgets right now. They're also going to pay billions and billions of dollars to support a corrupt Italy that will refuse us to you know, live by its own rules. It's just... This creates enormous culture. It's like a cultural seismology. And on top of that, you created the euro currency, 
where you have no, you have separate national financial policies in place, but a shared currency. That is completely unsustainable. And if you think that the Brussels bureaucrats are going to convince all of Europe, they're going to give up their national financial policies after the European Union handled the corona disastrously. You must be mad if you think people are going to do that. They're going to stand up against this. In my case here, I think Sweden and Denmark will have a radical debate within the next two or three years on a Swexit and a Danksit, where Sweden and Denmark could leave, join the UK, Norway and, 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 and no, Norway and Iceland, and create something Northwestern, wealthy, much more pro progressive, tech-oriented, futuristic than the European Union dragging along all these poor economies in Southern Europe into the future. I think I think Europe as it is now is unsustainable. We just old, fat, dying people everywhere. It's just but like Roland, go for it. Yeah. So um, first, uh, the European Union is not imposing direct taxes. They have agreed to borrow money, but it's all been ratified by the national parliaments. The EU, the EU does collect certain import duties on its own, but that's it's already done that. It is not imposing direct taxes on the members. No, that's it is. The environmental country. taxes will go directly to Brussels. Second, August 2020. Come, yeah. Calm down, Alex. <laughs> Second, the European Union has almost no power in public health. The problems that they've had in Sweden with the coronavirus was because the uh, very specific choices of the Swedish government to pursue a herd immunity strategy. That's not the European Union. The European Union just doesn't have power in public health. It doesn't have the power to pass laws in that area. They obviously, as member states, sometimes coordinate their activities. I together. only talked about but the vaccination program. Oh, wait, 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 one at a time, one at a time. Okay, let's go to Andrej, then uh, yeah, Roland, then Alexander. The European Union did have the power, uh, something very important. It had, did have the power to completely, completely mismanage the vaccination uh, uh, hold the vaccination process. And this actually is going to have a long lasting effect probably on the view of the European Union in many countries. I mean, this is not going to go away. This is going to be a very serious problem. And you and, and actually, yes, you know very well, um, uh, Denmark, um, uh, Austria already have actually um, uh, basically um, got out of the of this common system by now um, uh, uh, Making this, uh, well, starting these deals with Israel to, to to develop vaccines themselves, there is a very growing sense of um, great failure on, in this area, and this will actually, and and this precisely shows the kind. I mean, actually, I think in this whole event, many many problems with the European Union are just um, very visible. So this is not something that should be ignored and actually to say that the European Union didn't have the power, it actually did, 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 did have the power to negotiate, it completely mismanaged it, it appointed people who had absolutely no idea how to deal with it, it was fantastic failure. And this is really, um, well, that's what that's, that's uh, just connected with that remark. I wanted to say something about this comparison with the Soviet Union, because of course I didn't, what I meant, of course, was not uh, the Soviet Union was not firstly only the terror and totalitarianism. It was also the process of decline, the process which has very specific and starting with the utopian idea with many, many believers and then going through a long process through which where eventually it persisted mostly because it was uh, in the interest of the of the of, of the ruling class until it failed because the ruling class itself, the bureaucracy lost, discovered that, lost their belief in it, and not only lost the belief, but discovered that actually life was much better even for 
relatively not well off people in the West than it was um, for even for the elite of the Soviet Union. I mean, process like this is likely to take place. Eventually, the European elites will themselves discover that the system is not uh, well, it of course will depend very much what happens outside in the outside world, actually. I mean, I mean that's an, another situation. If things go really badly outside, if uh, of course, and I think then of course uh, this, this will have a different ef uh, effect. We cannot be sure of that. Uh, I mean, uh, I think also this is one reason why there is so much interest in in the EU in the fa in or um, hope for some kind of failure by Britain, hope that Brexit will turn out to be a bad thing, hope very visible ill wish, which actually I think is very well, uh, has been actually very visible during this this recent um, vaccine um, clash, and actually has been noticed in Britain. I mean, there's been very visible change in the attitude towards the EU in the UK, um, when people have begun to realize the, 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 the precisely this, the ill wish, the, the what is uh, what looks like even hostility i mean w w with of course uh, of course with formal declarations of undying friendship and uh, well this is yeah. this is uh geo and then i want to get to uh ronan and i do want to say one thing just in case i end up forgetting it there is no from what i understand freedom of speech in uh europe not at least the way that it is in America, and people have gone to jail for, uh, you know, criticizing migrants, things like that. So already, just like as a side observer, something like that strikes me as being pretty negative and something that would lead to uh, bad repercussions. But anyway, oh, uh, Gio... Hold, and then... hold on, hold on. But can you can't we, can say we have this, some specific examples very different that, different that's quite an incendiary thing to say. It's completely really? different in different countries. Okay. You cannot actually... You cannot, you cannot... There is no common European... European, um, but is there a freedom of speech in the same way that the United States has it? In well, no, but there's no freedom of speech in any country in the same way as any other country. That's a completely that's a that's a legal issue for each individual state to decide. Does it, does well, it basically your minimum article? It's called Article eight. Hello, um, Article Ten of the European Convention on Rights protects freedom of speech. It's not as wide ranging as the American First Amendment. And national constitutions are free to go ahead further if they wish. But um, to say there's no freedom of speech wouldn't be true at all, no. That, that would be an example. But I mean, we do see, like, for example, with um, these British police forces that, you know, have task force uh, regulating social media posts, for instance. I mean, that's become very memeable. Um, and it's very almost, I mean, it has a hilarious sort of tragicomic flavor um, to see, you know, resources being shifted that way. But I guess in general, uh, what I would want to ask is the different attitudes towards, well, I mean, it's almost inescapable to talk about healthcare systems, but maybe I guess this is a question more for Gareth. Um, yes, the, but also before attitude, that, I just want to say we have a new, yeah. we have a newcomer here. Oh, yeah, so, right. so real quick. And Elizabeth Mutet, thank you so much for coming in. Uh, hope everything is well. Uh, how's your cat? Everything is, uh... <laughs> My cat is very resentful because she's been prodded and pricked and everything. So she's very resentful, and I'm, you know, crossing fingers. She's a 16-year-old cat, um, and and we just waited for a long time at the vet. I, 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 it was all planned for me to be there on time, and then I wasn't. So apologies to everyone. But you've got another one. You've got two cats, right? I've got two cats. Yes. So, so. I have two cats. The, the elderly black one. Yes, of course. Yeah. So. 
Excellent. And for those who don't know, by the way, uh, for those who don't know, so Anne Elizabeth Moutet, uh, she uh, works for the Telegraph, 28 Minutes, Arte TV, Unheard, uh, Cap X, BBC, New York Post. So you have uh, quite uh, the uh, wonderful uh, credential sheet over here, and I'm uh, really thankful for you. Uh, for you being here today and right now we were um i want to go back to what Gio was talking about with the healthcare, but uh also if there is anything else you would like to add in the beginning as far as what you think of uh like the first like the phrase or word or anything that you would think of when you would think of uh, france you live in paris right now and what do you think when you think of the eu like as far as just any phrase or word or anything of that nature we actually had someone that asked about like please talk about france in the chat Yes, so here we go. We, we, we. Well, uh, first word that comes to mind is exhaustion, and that's <laughs> the general spirit, the state of state of things in France because of the COVID crisis. That's one thing, uh, and the mishandling of the COVID crisis by our government specifically, and then the mishandling of the vaccination procurement by the EU, uh, and then to some extent the incredibly spiteful attitude of our government because it's very French. Uh, not to acknowledge a mistake, essentially, because if you acknowledge a mistake, you're dead. So you lie about it, or you grandstand about it, or you derail, you know, various ways of doing this. And so uh, right now, I don't know whether I can um, find for you, but it's really something I have to send to you. It's the, uh, the, the cover story of Le Point this week, and I've got it in my phone, which is not terribly useful, but I'm going to send it to myself and then I can I can put it on there uh, about our, our vaccination campaign in which uh, last week there was uh, 10 days ago, there was a virtual European summit uh, being held on you know various encrypted equivalents to Zoom. And so Macron gave a press conference at the end of that and he you, you, you weren't, if you hadn't been paying attention, it was as if he'd had 200 journalists in front of him. He went at the Elysee, it was as always very smart. He was, uh, um, uh, he was uh, uh, sort of, uh, he talked for half an hour about the summit. And the first thing he said was that it was essential that the vaccination campaign should be um, uh, um, uh, organized through the European Union. That was the only way it could succeed. And at that stage, you thought, I mean, you know, uh, war is peace, um, uh, slavery is freedom, whatever, because he was in a parallel universe. It was like Star Trek Deep Space Nine. It was amazing. Um, and um, it, 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 this has been the case throughout. We kept on saying that we're doing very well, but we're not doing very well at all for various reasons. Some reasons are reasons of, you know, no luck, which happens. Some reasons are reasons of mishandling and some reasons are willful. The entire attitude of the government, this is coming out right now, is that um, from the start, from, from, from November, December, as they were sourcing those vaccines from the EU, hoping that they were being sourced, uh, the idea that they were aware that there was anti-vaxxer sentiment in France, and instead of thinking like the Israelis, for instance, or the Brits, let's do it and it will catch on because people will see how popular it is, which was the way many of the of the other uh, 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 religious communities in Israel, Jews and Arabs, got interested in the vaccine. The whole point was that uh, uh, lots of people were very happy of getting the vaccines and then suddenly it sort of started a kind of uh, 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 excitement about it. The French had the exactly opposite attitude. The opposite was... Uh, we are going to go very slowly and we're going to watch the others and they'll be on guinea pigs. And uh, if they, we do it like that, then people will be reassured. And like every 
other appeasement in history, it did not work because if people, the, the anti-vaxxers thought, well, there must be something terribly wrong with those vaccines since they're so scared. And what they were really scared were polls. Uh, and also the idea that uh, I am, you know, there's a, an old French saying that goes, je suis leur chef. Donc je les suis, I'm their leader, and therefore I follow them. And that was exactly it. Whereas the, the, the no, whole notion of leadership has disappeared. So what you've got is a people who feel bruised because you don't sort of, you know, have to comply to lots of authoritarian orders, which I think are perfectly founded. I'm not an anti-vaxxer, I'm not an anti-confinement, you know, I, uh, I believe in science and I don't think that, uh, you know, there are things that you have to go through and are grandparents went through much worse. But uh, all the same, this feeling that they didn't know where they were going was something that was incredibly disheartening. Uh, and, you know, look at Britain, which started so badly, and then got the, you know, the collective bit between their collective teeth, that's a lot of teeth, uh, and, and decided that they would go all out. Was it a gamble to some extent, but it was a positive gamble, and what we've had in France were negative gambles. So is this harming the EU, considering that France, the EU was sort of not really uh, an issue in France for so long, and because we were founding members of the, the Traité de Rome and before that of the SECA, the Communauté Européenne du Charbon et de l'Acier, uh, it takes a great deal for people to start being a bit uh, 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 worried about the EU, but the EU right now has uh, demonstrated that it could be just as petty and inefficient as the worst bureaucracy, the worst of our bureaucracy. Our bureaucracy is also getting very bad when it was really a good, you know, an effective bureaucracy. And that's an entirely different question, which is unrelated to the EU. But uh, all of this makes for, uh, uh, it's interesting because it's a piece I've got to write slightly different angle, but the same piece for the Telegraph tomorrow. Uh, and essentially it is a lack of trust, a lack of optimism, which is not a French virtue at the best of times, uh, and, and, and or anger. I should say, a sort of nihilistic anger because you don't know exactly how to direct it. Macron was probably the first, um, the first French president or a French candidate for the presidency who four years ago ran with as many blue and gold uh, European EU flags as French flags. And those flags in the rallies were, of course, distributed to people coming in. So you know that they, accept, they wanted this. And it was really the whole point is Europe. And right now, because he is a French technocrat, at the used to be at the top of the pile for so long. Uh, the idea is that you know Angela Merkel is leaving and France is going to be the leader of the EU. Uh, and therefore, I think he pays this incredible homage name, by name to Ursula von der Leyen for her wonderful vaccine rollout. Uh, and, and, and people notice all this. So we have a presidential election next year. That presidential election is looking very weird. Uh, as you know, we have a system in which we've got two rounds. The first round is a sort of, you know, uh, pick whoever you like. And the second round, uh, except in, in very rare conditions, you get the, you know, for the people who arrive first uh, and second, and that's it. Every poll right now says it's going to be Marine Le Pen against Macron again. Most French people say we're not interested in having Macron and Marine Le Pen again. We saw that. They're not especially enthusiastic about her. They, she has, she's perceived probably with justice as incompetent. Mm. Uh, her party certainly is not a party. It is a, it's a sort of strange family sort of business. It's a bit of a family with a but, sort of... By, by the way, are the uh, gilets... Right? Yeah. yeah. Are the gilets jaunes uh, still... Oh, sure. The last poll, the last yeah. poll uh, on the second round, which is always, you know, 
difficult. But if it's Macron and Marine Le Pen, it's 48-52, which means it's almost within the margin of error. And, and everybody is struck. And that one of the reasons is that lots of people are saying, look, we, we, we voted against Fort Chirac and against the father Le Pen in 2002 because we had to be a, to, to be a barrage against fascism. We voted for Macron, whom we didn't know, against Marine Le Pen in 2017. Same thing. We're not doing this again. Um, and then what about the uh, Gilets jaunes, just real quick, because people were asking about that. Are the Gilets jaunes still uh, uh, active in France right now? The Gilets jaunes are trying to sort of revive their thing on Saturdays, but it, there are many conditions in which, which make it difficult. And like everybody else, they're tired. But the spirit of the Gilets jaunes, which again is a nihilism that doesn't belong to a party, but which is very destructive in many ways. I mean, they, you know, in the beginning, there was a great deal of understanding for the people. They were Trump people. And this is what happens when you've got the makings of the populist movement, but nobody seizes it. And nobody, Marine Le Pen tried to sort of go to their demonstrations and they said, we're not interested because they knew her. She was familiar. They felt that she'd been for long enough in this, that, you know, she was part of the game. And uh, as an argument for populism, and I'm not sure that it's a valid argument, I've no idea what would happen, but uh, there was nobody to embody that movement. And what happens is people who are not, you know, who don't trust anything anymore. I'm not sure it's very good. Hmm. Well, well, I would like is... to okay, remind you sure, of yeah, the entertaining series of the Gilets Jaunes. Remember, love? Yes. I would like to add that this <laughs> is common today that we get these sort of internet driven, uh, romantically decentralized populist movements the last three days. Remind, I would remind you of Occupy Wall Street. Occupy Wall Street lasted three days. The third day, the capitalists walked down to the demonstrators and sold them the t shirts and the Instagram cameras so they could take their fucking picture and go home. There is no staying power in the Gilles Jaunes in France either because the internet driven, like you said uh, correctly, Anne, you, you said that without a, a, a leader personifying the movement, they're doomed from day one. And now everybody gets that. So they're not scared of these demonstrators any longer as well, that they're out. So, Alexander, you don't agree with Hart and Negri with uh, the multitude idea of decentralized sort of singularities coming together. <laughs> I hate Hart and Negri with a vengeance. That book is <laughs> so crap. Okay, if you read yeah. Empire, that book, that's romantic drivel of the worst kind with the multitude crossing borders. And yeah, we saw that happening in Europe in 2016. We had about several hundred thousand coming to Sweden. We have massive problems with integration. That, that it's, just, it's just ghastly. It's just horrible. And, and no, nobody in Europe believes that kind of shit any longer. Nobody reads Hart and Negri. They're dead. They're out. They read, they read them in American literary department. They read Karl Marx these days. They read class analysis. They, they read taxation. They read, they read books about redistribution of justice. And they hate woke and they hate Martinegri. Mm. You know, that's where things are going. With no, and Ro Ronan, you had a question. Yeah, so I just want to um, say, at first, I think I agree with um, Anne-Elizabeth that the French election is actually, that is a big threat to the European Union the way the French two-round system works. Last time, they were pretty close, actually, to a second round between uh, Jean-Luc Mélenchon and uh, Marine Le Pen. There are three or four points off that. And that, that would be the end of the Eurozone. Um, so that's there is a real worry about both the French electoral system and Macron has destroyed the centre-right and centre-left. So when he's gone, who's left then to stand against uh, Le Pen? That, it, there's a big gap there. In relation to the vaccine, I would say the European Union did mess up. They um, 
there's a real problem in the European Union actually with approach to risk. There's an excessive risk aversion that then becomes risky. And here they they drove uh, bad. They, 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 they focused on all the wrong things, on price and things like that. However, the other thing I would say is that when we, the way the European Union works, the member states are very much in the have most of the power, and then the European Union institutions have a certain degree of power. In relation to the vaccine pr proposal, the member states agreed to every single decision the European Union made. Austria, which is now saying, oh, we're going off to buy vaccines elsewhere, because they were the chair of the group, the steering group of states that, that, that devised the policy. Poland and Slovakia and Hungary who are complaining that the European Union now they want to buy other vaccines. They were the ones who said, we want to spend less. You're spending too much money on these French and German vaccines. So there's a large degree of hypocrisy of member states blaming the EU for things that they themselves are complicit in. And it's a problem with EU democracy, the member states, when we say Brussels did something, actually what we mean is the Br Brussels and the member states did it. But the member states tend to just push things that don't go well onto the European Union. Or I do think that they did that the Ursula von der Leyen has not been accountable enough for the for the failure. The European Medicines Agency is a bit more cautious. But member states, you know, like I'm in Britain and I've actually had my first vaccine, which is great. I wouldn't have got it if I was still in Ireland. Um, yeah, it's great. It's a, like you had a headache for two days and then felt fine. So uh, it's quite exciting. And they you they have got everything else wrong on this pandemic, but they've got the vaccine right. Partly because they took a risk, but I think a justified criticism of the European Union is they have had such an aversion to any risk. And I've from my family live in France, and they, and in Ireland, the health service wanted fifty-eight pieces of information initially from everybody to get the vaccine. They said, "Oh, we can't give it out quickly. You have to get fifty-eight pieces of information from every person." I mean, I don't know. I don't know what they're asking, like star sign or something. I, I think they they narrowed it down a bit later and they're going quicker. But, uh, and in France, my aunt who's in her late 60s is still waiting. So it, there's an ultra caution that ends up being incautious. So I, I do think the European Union messed up, but the member states who are now criticizing them and blaming the member were equally, were complicit in what went wrong. Well, I guess the question yeah, but, for- Ronan, uh, yeah. Hold on, I don't know what happened to Alexander there. We're going to have to see if the webcam goes. There we go. People will go back to nation state order. That's what they did during the pandemic. So the problem here is a perceptive one. You, you can argue as much as you like that the European Union is not to blame for this or that. But the perception will be what is then the European Union for? If it doesn't add a value that our nation states provide to us anyway, it can only cause us problems. Right now, it's also costly. So that's the problem. They, there's, no I mean, winning, there's, no, there's no thing for the European Union to win in all this over the next time. I mean, it is like so Germany would have got loads of vaccines on its own. It's a rich, wealthy, powerful country. France probably would have too, but it would take 20 years to distribute them, but they would have got them. But they, uh, but if, you're, uh, if you are a small country like Slovenia or Slovakia, you wouldn't have got vaccines on your own. Actually, there, Brussels did add value for those countries. And there was a degree of self-sacrifice on the part of Germany to, and France and uh, to agree to coordinate. It should have gone Ronan, better. Ronan, did is, Ronan, Ronan, Israel is 7 million people. They beat the shit out of everybody else. They're a small country. Malta is in the European Union. They've done 50 percent Israel is 7 million. They're, they're world top. So but, that's what people will compare with. Why are we not Israel? Malta is one of the highest countries in the world, and they're an EU member state. They have 15 percent of their yeah, population. That, that's an argument that voters will never even hear. I'm talking about perception here. I'm talking um, about I, yeah, I mean, I, I can't control the voters here or listen yeah. to it. Well, going back to the idea of perception here, 
when it comes to the way that uh, people in Europe are perceiving, as was talked about before in the chat, uh, Europe committing suicide. And this is uh, goes a little bit further away from uh, vaccination. I think that is an interesting discussion. But when it comes to what Anne Elizabeth was talking about, this nihilism that people like part of the Gilets Jaunes are feeling, I think part of it is economic, but I also think that parts of it may also be uh, cultural, may also be related to uh, immigration and whether there is, in terms of birth rates, going to be a same kind of Europe, culturally speaking, in the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years, or uh, not. So I wanted to bring this into the discussion and uh, curious what uh, everybody thinks. So uh, let's actually uh, start with, uh, with Anne, if uh, you'd be interested in uh, speaking about this. Oh, you gotta unmute yourself. There, you gotta mute yourself. You're muted right now. You gotta mute yourself and everybody subscribe right now. Subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. Yes, there we go. Go for it. Okay. Uh, about the nihilism. Uh, it's very interesting that uh, we are coming to the, 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 the polarization that you see practically everywhere is something in which you use are essentially Chinese shadows more than real ideas. And on the one side, you know, you can say, okay, you've got the woke uh, uh, or whatever you want to call them, but basically people who say the world has to change, it's all about social justice. But it's, it's, it's something that is incredibly simplistic and it's very dangerous because it's simplistic. It is uh, sophisticated in terms of the application in society because we, I mean, honestly, the, the parallels with the, with the Chinese Cultural Revolution and the parallels with uh, the, the old Soviet Union and, and, and satellites, uh, Andres will know more than I do about it, but certainly uh, it, it is very obvious. Uh, but the whole point of deconstruction, if you do it right, uh, uh, aiming for their goals, is that when you've just deconstructed enough, people have no memory. Uh, so that's one thing. Uh, and on the other side, you've got uh, uh, a sort of uh, uh, what the French under the revolution called Le Marais, uh, kind of, not the swamp at all, the sort of people who are not sure what they were on one side or the other and who, who have no arguments, the centrists. And then you've got the populist right, which is... Uh, the, you know, the, the, the whole range from deeply unsavory to, well, actually, it might be working that thing. Uh, but they are demonized by the others. And to be honest, the uh, you can always, you know, uh, I, I now, I come from the left and I am now really skew right, but uh, I remember what, you know, lots of things of what they were like before. Uh, and uh, certainly whenever I hear too much from my friends on the right, and I like them dearly, but most of them, honestly, will shoot themselves in the foot at one stage or another. Uh, the lack of suffocation at one stage, you think, I mean, Trump is a very good example. Trump is actually, to my mind, not a man of the right. He certainly, I think he actually felt very strongly the, um, uh, he felt very strongly the, the, uh, uh, the, 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 the demand of, of, the, uh, of the Trump voters. I think there was a real symbiosis and I think that was actually something, there aren't that many things that were honest about Trump, but I think that actually was honest, which is why they perceived it. Uh, it's not a very popular opinion, but uh, he, I mean, he comes from Queens. He worked with construction uh, the, uh, the gangs all his life. He knows these people and he feels familiar. He's interested in the same thing as they are, lots of gold and large boobs. So there was, there was something together and he himself, 
has been looking. His father was a, a, a millionaire, not a billionaire, and he was a millionaire in Queens, and Trump wanted to make it in Manhattan, Manhattan his way. He's got lots of unpleasant aspects, and uh, but, and certainly he shot himself in the foot in spectacularly with a capital thing. But there was something that he identified. And this is why many, many, uh, this is also, I mean, there's a danger in this because there's a danger on the right to, uh, uh, for the, uh, the populist, we, we know where they go. And God knows that if we didn't know where they go, the, uh, 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 the other side would tell us where they went many, many, many times. Uh, but it means that at the end of the day, you don't have the means to have uh, a great force of conviction and a sophistication of thought uh, underpinning, uh, underpinning it. And to some extent, that's what Reagan had. I mean, to a large extent, that's what Reagan had. That's certainly what Margaret Thatcher had. But they were within uh, the framework of parties that they were not trying to, to change. Uh, they did change them, but they, they didn't come saying, I want to upset everything. They didn't do a, a Meghan Markle and come in and say, uh, nice castle you've got, I'm going to repaint everything orange. Uh, and, um, <laughs> and, and, uh, well, they were neoliberals uh, at heart. I, I don't know where we're getting on this one because I can, well, all I can do, and I'm a journalist, you know, I'm not a great thinker. I write little things in the paper, but um, the situation right now is that nobody is offering any uh, space for people. And I said, just space to breathe and start thinking when you breathe. I'm not sure politics mm. can do this. Every now and then it does, and probably it stumbles into it by, by mistake and, and finds it interesting. But there's no ideology except the, the mechanical uh, totalitarian, baby totalitarian ideology of the left. And on the right, there's anger. Uh, I, 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 I'm not sure where, where we can find something on this, but I, I'm not losing hope on, I'm not losing hope on the right in other countries. I've totally lost hope about the right in France because you've got Marine Le Pen, who actually is not a fascist. She's, you know, she's, she's got a family business. You've got some, uh, a small uh, crowd of people whose ideology belongs to the 19th century and the first half of the first 20th century. They're polite, usually cultured, and they have no idea what, what tomorrow's world looks like, which is really strange. Um, and so, to my mind, they can do damage and mostly they're useless. You've got a vast uh, uh, sort of centrist or center-right uh, movement in which the, the last interesting character was Nicolas Sarkozy. I mean, a small minority in regretting Sarkozy. Uh, there was something about Sarkozy. Uh, and he was uh, clumsy and impatient. But there was actually something interesting because there was a hinterland in, in, in Sarkozy's um, uh, uh, will to do something. He was also a great politician, uh, which people have forgotten. Anyway, Sarkozy has been killed by activist judges. Um, uh, and and he you know he's gone. Uh, he will not come back. Uh, and and his party has not learned anything from this. And right now you've got five or six figures on the French right who are duking it out, and we're going to have a, a, a choice of three or four lackluster candidates for the right. Uh, and I don't think they can win. And on the left, the the democratic left, as you know, 
pas grand-chose. And, and, uh, but by and large, if you take polls in France, France is more declares itself. People in polls are more right-wing or conservative than they are uh, on the left, except that they don't really know what they mean by conservative. The other thing is the French are not very aware of what various conservative movements are like in the rest of the world. There is always a lack of French people to bring it on international conferences of, of you know, Uh, uh, intellectuals and politicians together. And I've always been amazed by the fact that I would go to a conference in Washington or Budapest or other place and I'd find all sorts of nationalities and there would be a small contingent of French people who would insist to speak in French on the rostrum, even though 95% <laughs> of the audience understands English directly and mm. who essentially were doing demonstrative. And uh, yes. re real quick, I just uh, I just wanted to add that uh, when it comes to this uh, dissatisfaction that people are seeing and the solution to that, I personally, just my own view, is that I am for anybody as far as having an open door as long as they're able to integrate within the uh, culture and have uh, the culture be something that rises them up to a higher level like we had in Russia. We had a conversation about this before, Anne Elizabeth. Like in Russia, we had uh, Hannibal who uh, was adopted by Peter the Great, and then came Pushkin, you know, the great Pushkin, who was responsible for the uh, modern Russian language. And of course, you have Alexander Dumas, you know, uh, in uh, France. So again, this ex there are so many examples of people who are able to come in and create the best culture uh, from the areas that uh, their ancestors, like near ancestors or themselves, have been able to integrate into. But I think the problem today is that, at least in the minds of people who are talking about this, they are not not seeing that and uh, in a wide in a wide sense they are seeing more disconnection kind of like separate tribes away from the uh, from the dominant culture and they're concerned about that but also to the point that uh, when Gareth was talking about that you know every country is different when it comes to uh, freedom of speech and I agree but there still at least to me seems to be a pattern when I look at various countries in the EU of that kind of criticism being something that's you know really iron-fistedly uh, against as far as police coming in and uh, arresting people for quote-unquote hate speech. So I think this is also one of the elements that makes people react so negatively when they're not able to express themselves and it ends up putting them in what much more of an echo chamber and not even hearing, you know, a better perspective on how a lot of these things could be addressed. So well, maybe uh, we could... What, what yeah. I, wanted I, mean, to... I think you should distinguish two things because, I mean... Uh... Go ahead. On the one hand, sorry, it's very interrupting, but oh. on, for the, on the one hand, on the one hand, uh, it is true that European countries, many European countries, have a different tradition and different attitude to free speech as such than the United States. So that's one aspect. On the other hand, I don't think this is it's true that there is a uniform European sort of ideology that is being uniformly exposed. I mean, for example, take one example, which I nobody talks about, but I think it's extremely interesting in Europe. And that is Denmark. I mean, that is the, the current prime minister, you know, Meta Fredriksen. Uh, I mean, Denmark is actually in, on this precisely issue of immigration exactly right now. It actually, if, if, for example, Trump did the kind of thing that the Danish government has been doing and saying, there would be tremendous uproar. And that is not, and that is also the Social Democratic Party, which actually has now, and the, the situation that has that now exists in Denmark is this: that you've got the right and the the traditional left, because that's what actually uh, the current prime minister is, and so on, who actually have basically um, agree um, agree on on the most fundamental issue, and they, they put the 
say the what may be called the globalists or liberals or whatever in a situation where they don't have any room because both right and left are uh, occupied. So this actually could be the direction. I mean, I don't know. This could be a future direction of, of Europe. Maybe we don't see an example elsewhere. But it could I, be that I can explain the that. May that. So uh, the way you see it from Scandinavia is that these are very tech-savvy countries. They, they think more of themselves as California than think of themselves as Southern Europe. So you got a lot of tech companies in Sweden, Finland, Norway, Denmark, highly advanced economies. They're big in biotech. Denmark is world leading in these things. They're just tired of taking on poor refugees coming from Eritrea and Afghanistan who cannot even take on courier jobs in these economies. They would gladly invite people coming from more educated places in the world to move to these countries and then take on high paid jobs. This is not a racist policy at all. That's exactly why the <laughs> left has embraced it. So what the left wants is basically look at Australia, Canada, the countries that have large immigration populations that actually go straight to work and start companies and become an integral part of the economy. That's, that's where Scandinavia is heading. The question here, I think, is that where Scandinavia and Holland are looking at themselves as, as you know, 30 million people, northern end of Europe, highly skilled economies, very advanced, highly educational. They, they look like the wealthier parts of, of America and the best parts of the UK. They're now watching Brexit. And if Brexit is not a flop, if Brexit works, they will certainly have much more of a discourse in these countries. Like, why are we being heavily taxed by the European Union to pay for bills for people in Sicily and Greece who never get their shit together? That, because all the problems the European Union had up to 2018 were just buried underneath the corona pandemic. The corona pandemic has then been mishandled on top of that. And out of that comes all these questions coming roaring back again by 2022. The problems with migration, the problems with unemployment to Southern Europe, the problems with not getting the right people to move to Northern Europe, and how Northern Europe, north of the Alps, is pulling the economy from south of the Alps. When essentially Southern Europe is just becoming a tourism economy where wealthy Northern Europeans go and buy property at best. That, that's, the, that's the larger picture. France is torn right in between these two forces. Germany and Scandinavia and Holland are now, they're like, if we're gonna be the wealth producers, the tech economies, the, the new economies that start all the new companies in Europe, if that's gonna pull the economy out, unemployment in Sweden is record low, even in the midst of the pandemic. So if these countries are gonna pull off, they're gonna ask themselves the question, why are we paying such a huge bill to Brussels and we get so little out of it? And then you look at Central Europe, where we have manufacturing now in Europe. It's all in countries like Czech Republic, Slovakia, Ukraine, Poland, because they pay less there than they do in France and Germany, but they work just as hard as the Germans and the French do. That's, for example, the European car industry. It's, it's located in Slovakia these days. Slovakia is the main production country of the European car industry. But the Central Europeans have very, very far-right governments today. They've gone in that direction dramatically in the last few years. They don't care too much about democracy, but they care about their economies working. They've isolated the countries during the pandemic, and they're also going to ask themselves the question, what is the deal here? What are we part of, and what, why would it pay off for us? All the based rip. Uh, no. Can I <laughs> Alexander, again? I didn't... Oh, sorry, Ronan. But no, uh, Alex... Yeah, Ronan, you go, you go. But yes, Alex, just, he, well, he seems to want to create a neo-China within um, <laughs> a Singaporean neo-China within Scandinavia. So <laughs> I work as a consultant for the Slovenian government. I used to work as a consultant for the Estonian government, and I'm proud of it. I work with tiny countries where ten people can decide things and get things on the move. I hate empires. <laughs> go, ahead. Yeah. go ahead. Go, go for it, Ronan. The, the, the European Union budget is limited. Is one percent of. Uh, EU GNP. So it's, it's not true that people are being heavily taxed 
forecast to fund uh, European Union because it's one percent of EU uh, GNP. That's all, it's, and it's limited by law to that, so it's it's not bigger. Um, and I would also say that to blame the EU for them for whatever issues various countries have on migration. Well, the fact that Danish policies are so radically different, for instance, to Swedish policies or French policies or Italian policies, shows that within the framework of the European Union, member states can make very different choices on migration policy and integration policy. Um, I think, I mean, uh, you know, of course, America and North North America, indeed, Canada too, has a has a national stories based on migration, which is different. But within Europe, we have an, we have our own migration stories. They're not the national foundation story because they're not settler societies. But like uh, Sarkozy is a Hungarian name. Uh, he, uh, you know, there's been migration within Europe. And France, I agree that there's pessimism. But France is that uh, the name the, the writer said it forgets. But it's you know, France is a wonderful country with a amazing strong economy, amazing public services, food and things. But they say you know France is people who a population who live in paradise who are convinced they live in hell and they uh, <laughs> it's, it is you know it, things work pretty well in france and tax is very high but the the state mm-hmm. can do an awful lot now, they but, can't but, do that. Are, but culturally do things work well in france as far as somebody was asking before well, how safe yeah. would you be walking down certain uh french uh, areas certain uh, you could say ghettos i'm not sure what you the right term here be would be a lot of you know that france doesn't have particularly high crime but one interesting, because you're talking about the Americanization of European politics and identity politics, and it's quite interesting that France is one of the only places that has maintained its own separate intellectual traditions, where, because you do see, I, I do notice that American coverage of French issues, particularly issues of laicite and secularism, they have, it is just, there's an attempt, it's like um, Cinderella's sister trying to squeeze uh, French, uh, something that comes from very specific tradition in French history of republicanism and citizenship, and they just try and apply an American frame of reference to it that yeah, they don't looks at laws that are very complicated and often quite left-wing support and makes them into some kind of Jim Crow equivalent. That just to apply an American framework to French debates around religion and secularism and citizenship is just wrong. Well, the, but France yeah, has a very strong ability to... It still has its own intellectual traditions and it conducts public debate and pushes back against that in quite an admirable way. Look, I'm not saying France is getting it all right because there is there are ways in which Leicester is being instrumentalized by Marine Le Pen and her friends who, who never liked it before it became an anti-migrant tool. But, you know, it, it, at least there is... I, my sense is that in France there is really vibrant public debate on these issues in a way that is... Um, not certainly not the case in 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 the United States and Canada and to some degree in Britain. I think that there is a very vibrant, uh, different ways of looking at things that are not well, just all about identity politics. Well, you would say that France is also, when it comes to um, notions of secularism, it's simply not the same case as the American, like you know, Anglo-Saxon Protestant notion of secularism. Yeah. I mean, France is the land of extremes. I mean, they have the most like positive atheists right in the country of the most uh, trad calves, right? So that, but what, but I wanted to get Gareth in here. I wanted to ask. Could about, I just say one last thing for two seconds? Yeah, go ahead, just, go ahead. The, just because the history of French secularism in, in America, they separated religion and state in order to protect religion from domination by the state. In France, they separate religion and state in order to prevent domination of the state by religion. It's a very different way of looking at things. And I think the Americans don't understand that that's the history. The Republic 
beat the Catholic Church. That's where it comes from. Well, if it would work from the unfortunately, <laughs> well, if it but... would work from the inside. But the problem is that, like, even over here in Brooklyn, it's a very, you could say, multicultural uh, situation that we're in here, where we have people who are Jews, people who are uh, Muslim, uh, living uh, side by side. But as far as what actually creates the worldview of somebody who, let's say, has certain traditions that have been passed down from master to disciple not only in terms of law of, you know, how you should eat, uh, how you should marry, but also in terms of military law, in terms of how you fight battles and uh, morality law and things that, theoretically speaking, in like 100 years or 50 years or whatever, there may come a time where certain areas would end up from the mentality on the outside coming to the fore, where people would elect people who would rather have a separation between what, let's say, the French way of life is versus what the way of life was in Algiers before uh, it became a colony of France, as an example with the... Uh, think, um, yeah. Barack Obama has rightly said, and picking up on things that people from Harvard and Reese Lottery have said, look, the, the, the project of building um, a multicultural society uh, in which uh, a previously dominant ethnic group is now a minority is one that we don't have many precedents for. We... We don't know how it's going to work out. And I think it's, it's, it is absolutely false to the implication of many people that we know it's fine and anyone who's worried about how it might work out is foolish no, or bigoted. That's not true. We don't know how it's going to work out. But we have plenty of resources. In, you have to believe a little bit in liberal democratic societies. We have plenty of resources in our societies to deal with these problems. It won't always be easy. Europe owes a lot of the world, certainly Britain and France do, for their colonial adventures elsewhere. And so we need to keep an open door for party for those reasons, too. But, you know, well, it's, what it's wasn't an empire, term. though? What who didn't have colonies? Iran had colonies. Africa had their own colonies yeah. within Africa itself. The difference like is that the Europeans like, actually stopped. In Algeria is pretty, yeah, no, no, it's, it's pretty, pretty bad. Wait, wait, but again, compared to what? Every, everybody guess, was bad. I'm not saying that that means they have to let everybody in, but you know, reality is... France has 10 million Muslims in it. We, we, we have to all get on. And France actually is in some ways better place than most places because French Muslims are the most liberal Muslims in Europe by, by, by some degree. There are more, uh, France has the highest rate of friendships across religious divide, mutual esteem. So France has lots of good things going for it. Again, you're not going to read about it in a lot of the Anglophone press because they love to demonize the French secular model. But you know, France actually has a lot going for it, a, probably a better chance of making it work than some other places. And it, you know, it's also, we don't have any choice but to make it work. Maybe if you well, what, what about Saudi Arabia? There's a really big uh, Middle East uh, out there, and I'm sure that they would love to be, you know, around people who are interested in ways of life that are similar to theirs as far as traditions go. I mean, that's because we have a few guests that have to. Yes, yeah, but I would say I would I would agree with Hulebeck though that uh, it's it's really I mean we should protect. Um, the the muslim migrants from from liberalism but that's, that's my own um <laughs> that that geo's whole before, different take yeah but that's um i think that was the book submission but um gareth i wanted to ask you because it seems inevitably that we're leading back to um it, it comes up when it comes to european politics but also even in america you could really say about the you know anglosphere legalism specifically when it comes to healthcare so maybe you could give us an insight as to why the nhs is such a dominant force within 
not just British society, but British culture, but all, and it's taken a hit with the pandemic, but also it's, it seems to me, it's really alien, especially for Americans, because for example, one of the, the ad campaigns was protect the NHS, not protect the nurses or doctors, protect the NHS as the system itself. What, I mean, coming from a country that has the same sort of, I w I mean, worship is a strong word, but let's just say worship of the healthcare system. What do you think is the sort of, the attitudes that British people have towards their system, as opposed to say people in Poland, people in Hungary, people in Scandinavia. Well, I mean, Scandinavia, they do have a strong healthcare system, but this is your expertise. And, and uh, you, maybe you should sort of defend, uh, you're taking the role of defending the attitude that the, the British public have towards these institutions, especially the NHS. So yeah, before you yeah, go. yeah, absolutely. I'll get on to that. I mean, the, the, the first thing I say, I would say in relation to these other things, I, I think also, this issue of being no-go zones in the French uh, in the French suburbs. You hear about London as well with these no-go zones. You hear about it in the city I live in, in Birmingham. There is no-go zones because of immigration. It's complete and utter bullshit, most of it. There are, there are crimes. Some of those crimes are committed by immigrants. The idea that immigration is causing these problems is absolutely bullshit. As for the NHS, one of the reasons why the NHS is... Um, is so revered in this country is because it's one of those few national institutions which has survived since the aftermath of the Second World War. Our national insurance system for unemployment and sickness benefits, all that kind of stuff, that's fragmented, become more privatized, become more kind of personal insurance based and has kind of withered away. And it's kind of become one of those things that can be demonized as a thing. Oh, well, only the poor use that. Um, whereas the NHS is one of those those few parts of the of of uh, probably other than the schools, it's the it's the one thing that everybody uses and everybody has some kind of stake in. And for whatever reason, uh, the the idea that you all pay in and you can all take out healthcare is the one thing that the British still seem to agree. Yes, that should be one of those things that we do. Um, and it, I I do find it actually interesting, Gio. I find it really interesting because as a historian of the welfare state. We had healthcare before the NHS started. And I'm saying this as somebody yeah, that's who's a massive fan of the NHS and free healthcare or free at the point of delivery healthcare. I understand I pay taxes. Um, we had healthcare beforehand. There was a healthcare system for the very poor. There was uh, an insurance system for those people who were employed. Uh, there was a private healthcare system for those people who could afford that level of care. All of that, all of that was there before the NHS started. And the, the, the cost of converting our health system into another health system would be massively prohibitive. But the French healthcare system seems to work pretty well. The German one seems to work pretty well. The Swedish one seems to work pretty well. There are other ways of funding it. There are other ways of running it. But for whatever reason, I think the, the NHS is one of those cross-party things that has survived in the mythologies of both the Conservative Party and the Labour Party, which are basically the two parties that have any chance of getting into power in this country. And I kind of get it from that kind of cultural connection thing when we've lost so many of those things that bind us together. And immigration is one of those things. We tended to think of ourselves as a homogenous white society. We can't tell ourselves that lie anymore because immigration is much more visible. Um, and maybe the NHS is that one thing that actually does transcend race. It does transcend the individual nations within the UK, England, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland. It does transcend class in a way that virtually nothing else in Britain transcends class. Um, and I think that's one of, the, one of the things that it kind of represents 
Britain in a really weird way. The other way it represents Britain is that it's underfunded and it's falling apart. So maybe that's the maybe that's the other thing. But mm. well, I want to also feel uh, a bit nice about I, it. I, I, I have to go, everybody. So oh. thank you very much. Oh, Ronan, thank you so thank much. You much. I really appreciate you, you being here. It is a great very pleasure. Very and, nice uh, to meet you all. Nice to meet you too. And guys, you could find out uh, more stuff about Ronan. I'm going to show the link right now. So guys, be sure to follow Ronan on Twitter. And I really appreciate him taking the time to uh, talk with us over here. Ronan McRae, here we go. Here it is in the chat, everybody. So be sure to subscribe to uh, uh, Professor McRae. And I'm so honored to have you here. These are very important conversations. And uh, once again, I just wanted to quickly say that, uh, like I said before, to me, culture transcends any characteristic as far as you know where you come from you know facially or whatever you know like all that stuff i don't care about what i care about is what do you bring to the table as a human being as a person and that's a much more complicated discussion so i uh, hope Arun, i would love for you to come back later on and i would love to continue it because i think it is important i don't want to push people into an echo chamber where they're going to be xenophobic and distrust people depending on what they look like rather i would want them to uh you know and I know discriminating is a very powerful word, but I think there is discrimination that may be good in the sense of if you see people who are acting in such a way that is completely antithetical to the beliefs that you hold, to how you want to live your life, there is no reason why you should be together. And I think that as long as that balance is maintained, no discrimination whatsoever on these characteristics that people were born with, but at the same time, having a good kind of judgment when it comes to what is compatible or not, that is at least what I I hope to uh, uh, to have happen, but I would love to ask Alexander as well with the situation in Sweden right now what uh, your perspective is. So, Ronan, thank you so much. I really you appreciate much. your time. Oh, oh, I guess oh, we had two yeah, people going too. away. Oh man, I wanted to <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, ask no, him, but Gareth and Ronan had to leave. So that, right. I yes. know, I know. Well, Gareth is a trooper because the chat yes. really. Oh boy, <laughs> um, I don't know. I think I, I do think. In, in Europe, it is different because Europe, I mean, these are countries of origins for these ethnic groups. I mean, I, I know it's like a fucking uh, British is for Britain is for the British. But yeah, yeah, I do. I don't want to get into trouble. But yes, Britain should be for the British, French should be for French, blah, blah, blah. And, and Alexander, please, as a, as a Calabrese person. for the Scandinavian. Well, Alexander, you are deeply offending me as a Calabrese person. So, I, I, Calabrese, I mean, <laughs> I love the wine. Oh, <laughs> yeah, oh, I love boy. the Airbnb. But I think it, it's, I, just, I do it's think... just that it's not a really wealthy futuristic yeah. economy. I mean, that's the problem. That is, I mean, no, I, I, I mean, okay, let's okay, face it, that's okay, the truth. It okay, is okay. This is the perspective <laughs> of Europe from from you know how it will work. The way it will work is that north of the Alps, where you have the growth, the economic growth, you have the top education levels, best universities, to, yeah, and mm. the entrepreneurial spirit. So starting a company in Sweden is a thousand times easier than starting a company in Italy. That's just a fact. Bureaucracy is still enormous. Red tape is enormous in Southern Europe. So Italy is like just getting your house, buying a house in Italy, property, you need 50 different bureaucrats to stamp different Yeah, companies. it's- It's like Egypt. Yes. It's that bad, right? So. The thing is this, what will happen more, it's already happened in Europe, is that you will see Southern Europe go into sort of a tourism, 
older people, Florida type at best type of economies. It's just like wealthy Germans and Scandinavians will move there. If you look at Majorca after the 2008 crisis, the property prices in Majorca and the Balearic Islands didn't follow the mainland Spain at all. I mean, Barcelona was completely disconnected from Majorca because Majorca had already turned into a German Scandinavian economy. Every damn property on the island was owned by German or a Scandinavian. So the Canary Islands, yeah, that's like, that's like the Hawaii of Europe, not of Spain. People go from everywhere in Europe to these places. They buy property, they settle there. And when they get older and they have tons of money and there's a lot of old wealthy people in Europe and they all move to these places. But that is now the economy. And that's why the Corona pandemic hit Southern Europe so damn hard because they basically these countries are locked up. They're still locked up. Uh, Portugal is poor now. Greece is poor. Suddenly Italy is poor like shit. And now the EU is going to pay tons of money to these things, whether Ronan understands that or not. And this money is going to come out of countries like Holland and Sweden. And once the corona will be over, they will discover, the voters in these countries will discover, what the fuck? You know, all this money they took from us and gave there and still we're running these huge negative budgets to get over the corona pandemic locally in our countries too. I don't think this is sustainable at all. I, I, I... the European Union wasn't popular before the corona. It had major credibility problems. That's what Brexit happened. And with Switzerland and Norway and the UK being out of it and probably all doing pretty well, I think the debate is going to go on for years to come, whether you should stay in the European Union or not. It's not going to expand anymore. It's going gonna, it's gonna to shrink. It either has to get smaller quickly to then stay credible because the German-French alliance has to be there in the first place. And some countries like Finland and the Baltic states will love to be part of that for old historical security reasons. They will not leave. But a lot of countries like Sweden, Denmark, and Holland can play with the idea that maybe we should leave. Austria can play with the idea we could be Switzerland. So wherever you can mimic the outside of the EU model, countries will start playing with that idea. And that will put pressure on the EU to get smaller, to shrink. And it will get create pressure on the EU to dissolve the euro eventually because the euro cannot hold. Euro is yeah. bound to be a massive Tokyo earthquake sooner or later. You cannot run separate financial policies in all EU countries while you pretend you have a shared currency. The pressure inside the Euro Union right now is enormous already, and it will not hold. It's, it's completely unsustainable. And to detangle the Euro without severely damaging the European Union, I don't know how the hell that's going to work. Because anybody who's pro the European Union has been pro the Euro project. And it's terribly badly designed. But uh, I wanted to get um, Anne Elizabeth, um, your thoughts on what Bard just said, but also about the um, the 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 so-called far right in in the eurozone. It, it seems that right-wing populism is almost, if you look at the intellectual tradition of, for example, the new nouveau droit, which was largely in France. It's almost like right-wing populism is a misnomer. I mean, these were like elitist, aristocratic, like you know. Um, Tom Sunik, uh, uh, Benoit, people like that. It seems that right-wing populism is almost like an American invention it, that has- They're been... not popular. I mean, they, they are not, I'm oh, sorry, yeah. They are not oh, go ahead, one, go ahead, yes, yes. One, they were not populists. And at the time, because they appear in the seventies really, and it's kind mm-hmm. of reaction. Mm-hmm. You have the new philosophers on one side, but the new philosophers are too international cosmopolitan, uh, you know, yeah. that sort of thing. Benoit is a cosmopolitan way. Well, Benoit isn't. Uh, well, Benoit isn't. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, 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 they become, but then they sell themselves out to the American alternative, right? And then, yeah. You go ahead, go ahead, sorry. 
One, one of the things that you have to understand about the Nouvelle Droite, you know, and Nouveau was because of the Nouveau, Nouveau Philosophe. And basically, these are people who are still refighting the battles of 1940 to 1944. And, and uh, they essentially come from the Maurassien family, the one that Steve Bannon is talking about. But actually, Bannon is not Bannon's Morassism is not at all the Morassism of somebody like Benoit, who was steeped in it since childhood. And they are people who are looking back. They are people who, whose vision of populism absolutely belongs in, in the 20s and 30s. Um, and uh, the, not, not, all of them, not all of them belonged or had parents or family or something that belonged to the collaboration. But there's this, this uh, trauma. Uh, uh, to to for them intellectual trauma I should say uh, that they were uh, they were the bad people and they decided to again you again use sort of the modern vocabulary they decided to sort of own it and and be proud of it and the other thing is they are they are seats many of them and um, the ones who said that yeah. they were for free enterprise the Pascal Salins the Florent Talions they never went far because the there was no there was no terrain, there was no earth, there was no loom for them to grow something and make it happen in France. France is a country that has never believed in capitalism, it's never believed in free trade. It's, it's, uh, and it dates back from long before the revolution. It is a very regulated country. Uh, it's always worried about trade. I mean, in mm. the Renaissance, worried about trade. Especially oh, and look what I found, by the way. Was, uh, so sorry it took so I, long, but here is the cover oh, from uh, Le Point. Ah, oh, oh, well, finally. <laughs> well, especially after 68, that, that anti-capitalist sentiment was the orthodoxy after it. Yes, but it's uh, the, I mean, the French right is really a very specific thing. And, yes, uh, yes. Uh, and as I, and I mean, I, you know, you, you, you meet them. I, I, I know many of them and, and, and uh, I don't want to sort of just talk about individuals. But at the, at the end of the day, they are into what I'm sorry to call a pissing contest of intellect. They are very sterile in that matter, in, in that way, because it's it's uh, like all over the, here. All those, all those arcane, all those arcane cultural references, and they end up and I, and these are people who've got not inconsiderable intellects, and and they end up uh, uh, sort of uh, anti-vaxxers and and sort of pro-Putin without quite knowing exactly why they're pro-Putin. There are aspects that they refuse to look at, uh, and it's a waste of good intellect because they, again they 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 do not breathe. So I, uh, you, you find more or less interesting ones. What worries me about somebody like Marion Le Pen? Um, Marion Le Pen is an interesting character, much more interesting than her aunt, because she is yeah. somebody who is uncertain of her own intellect, but she's very hardworking. Um, and if I wanted to be nasty, I'd say she's a squat, but I have great respect for somebody who, when she decided to sort of take time off from politics, but build up her school in Lyon and meet people, she would meet with practically everybody who would see her and she would take notes for two, three hours. And that's, you know, you, you stop thinking, okay, there's somebody who's trying things. And I've seen Marion Le Pen perform well, and I've seen her perform less well. And I see the intellectuals who are around her and there might be something interesting there uh first because she herself is open to uh to 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 the rest of the world uh she speaks excellent italian she speaks excellent english she reads in those languages uh, she's friends with the salvini crowd in 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 italy um she was a massive success at cpac two years ago uh that's in right she yes did. 
he gave this excellent speech. And one of the things about this excellent speech is that speech had been modeled for an American audience. And she knew how to listen and how to do it. She gave another speech in English at the uh, almost a little bit over a year ago in, in Rome at this conference of rights, uh, nationalist uh, uh, conference where I was. And her speech was very good English, but basically it was a French structure translated into English because she was working with the people that she had with her who were French at the time, and it didn't go well at all. Uh, I mean, I, you know, people were happy and they, they they clapped, but it didn't go well because they said, oh, well, you know, she's giving us this incredible historical expose and all this, and do we need all this? And that's that's basically where the French suffer. Her speech with different IDs was a Macron speech. It was all about uh, uh, essentially doing an essay for Sciences Po, um, and, and that's what <laughs> that right suffers from. Um, well, do you, are you familiar? You're familiar with NRX's uh, neo-reactionary stuff over here. I mean, that's the same fate of ooh, over, ooh. Um, like neo-reactionary thinking, which is very much part of. Uh, unless you tell me names, and I know them. Like uh, Mencius, Small, Bucknick, Land, uh, people. Um, the the sort of no, no, but, but this is different. I would say, Jill. I think what Anne Elizabeth brilliantly is talking about here is that we see a rise of a sort of well-educated, very smart form of nationalism in Europe. Yes, that's but, it, but it's not it's, not it's not based on the conviction that I am a nationalist or proto-racist or anything. It's more like I'm a cosmopolitan person, but let's be humane here and let's understand what actually works. So it's much more of a sort of a sort of a, a historically grounded European pragmatic form of nationalism. I definitely think that's gonna be the next big thing in Europe. The same thing in Sweden, Germany, as in France. Mm. I think over the next 10 to 50 okay. years, because I meet a lot of these kids now are coming out of academics and they're clever. They know exactly how to step. Yes. They know the landscape, they're mature. We, yeah. we do not have them in France, but I've met them in Hungary. And mm -hmm. I've been yes. absolutely yes. blown away by the young people. I mean, the reason why I've been to Hungary several times is that I'm an old friend of Jono Sullivan's, who started the Danube Institute in, in Budapest. And mm. so he said, come over. And I was blown away by the quality of the 30-year-olds uh, who are at the Matthias Corvinus Collegium or who are with the Orban team. And I, you know, I understand, I mean, I can, I can see that Orban has got, I mean, he's, Orban himself is an interesting character. When he read Joram Hazoni's book about national he invited Hazoni, he talked with Hazoni, he took time off to discuss this. I mean, he's perfectly capable of, of intellectual uh, uh, curiosity. And at the same time, he's a, he's a, he's a really sort of can, canny grassroots politician who does exactly, he said this in Rome, he spoke for 90 minutes in Rome and it's online on YouTube and it's really worth listening to because he says, you know, if you don't win elections, being clever is no use. Having ideas and and no the, use. the North American press, they think he's like a Nazi and he's, uh, the French think he's a Nazi. I, yeah. I had a, a <laughs> BBC is especially. I had a public spat with Nathalie Loiseau, the former French European Affairs Minister who ran for uh, as as a Spitzen, uh, the, as head candidate of the uh, the um, uh, the, um, the French Macronist list, uh, new renewal, and and she of course was telling me how horrible and how what a fascist he was, and I kept on saying, look, you can walk down Andrassy Boulevard in Budapest and shout that you hate Orban, and nothing will happen to you except if you're stopping traffic, people will honk. But you know, there's no no no. I mean, I'm not saying they're perfect. I'm pretty sure there's a bit of corruption. I've talked about this with other people who said, look, there's corruption. All of these Europe will eventually go away, but it's still 
it's it was the case before it will the case afterwards it's not the defining part of his his uh, of his government uh, and he's canny and he is illiberal and he he you know he himself uses the word he is a liberal but it's not a dictatorship it's not a nazi dictatorship it's not belarus it's certainly not russia uh, and and that's what i think is interesting uh, and they are doing but the we are going back to something that we've had discussions on 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 twitter with andre which is the quality of education uh, they i mean those un those universities and, and and the schools are in my to my mind and when i started traveling in eastern europe immediately after the fall of the wall because i was so fascinated by it i mean i saw something that had been kept in aspects since the end of the end of the 19th century it's the german gymnasium at its best and it's what yes. the Eastern Bloc basically had as an education system. And I think that the Andros probably knows this better, but I think that's what the, they imported into Russia uh, in, in the 19th century. It's exactly Russian that quality education. of education. Yeah. And, and it's, it exists nowhere else. And it's untold that it's being reformed in, in the East, you know, to be more modern, which I think is a complete disaster. Uh, but, <laughs> <laughs> well, Lev, you're also a product of well, system. Well, he, here's, a th here's, a, well, here's the thing with the system. I think the reason why it worked in the USSR is because the teachers were competent and because the teachers were able to, uh, you know, get the students to uh, study really hard and uh, aim for getting high grades, while at least in the United States, and I don't know how it is in Europe, but it seems like in the United States, we just don't have good teachers. Oh, and God, that's well, the point is that the people um, I would say the, the USSR the situation I think is even now misunderstood in the West because yes. the yeah. Soviet system was actually contrary to the um, to the ideology and so on was extremely oriented to, into producing a well-educated elite only in other words mm -hmm. this was um, it was completely the opposite of the in other words the basic Soviet education was very poor but there but there was a constant search especially in those areas of course which were considered important like science and so on for the talented and there was the same in music and so on in fact it was exactly the opposite of the attitude of the left in the west um, the, <laughs> yes so, and the the, but... the the grades were also really tough like uh third grade math would have been like seventh grade or eighth grade math in the united states you know the levels but... were just yeah but for the elite yes but... Until, until 20 years ago, 30 years ago in France, French math in, in high school was better than math when people started college in America. But that, unfortunately, yeah. has gone away. But, you know, uh, two years ago, I was in Moscow for a conference and I met, you know, on the Russian side, there were people who'd been to Mgimo and were advisor to Putin. And I, <laughs> I might not have agreed with them, but by, you know, I mean, there was there was there was constructed thought in there. They, they were not stupid. Uh, it, it was very impressive, the, the quality of, of, you know, yeah. when they went at you. It, in, it was yes, but it, yes, but it is very elitist, and that what makes Eastern Europe different from Central Europe. So yes. uh, if you look at Slovakia, they have now more car, car factories than anywhere else in Europe. Manufacturing is high. You look at Czech Republic, look at Poland, look at Hungary. They do really, really well because they work hard, and they work hard for lower wage, wages than in Germany and Holland. That's why those economies really take it, they really work. I work in tech in Scandinavia. We employ now tens of thousands of programmers in where? Ukraine, Belarus, Romania. And these, these countries have good education systems. They have, have good mathematics. You mean you don't have to pick India and China to find programmers? No, 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 that, that, it's harder to communicate with them. They're slower, they're not as good as they are in Central Europe. But this is Central Europe, so 
if you go to the Baltic states, the same experience you had at Anne Elizabeth when you went to Hungary, that's what I have in the Baltic states. You have to remember that the Baltic states were part of the the Baltic states were part of the Soviet Union. They became independent in the 1990s. Nobody spoke a word of English when I was there in 1998. Within a generation, yeah, everyone sure. has learned English as a second language. That's unheard of even in France and Germany. Everybody in Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia speaks English second language. Now they're yeah. returning home. They've been waiters in the UK, so they're returning home and they're starting tech companies in Vilnius and Riga. Estonia has had a plus population growing since 2017 and now taking in migrants. These countries work. And they will certainly be part of the European Union if you give them a deal to stay in the European Union. They're okay with that because their economies will work because they work hard and they, because they know inflationary pressure, the salaries haven't gone up too much. So they're going to go towards very low unemployment after the corona in these countries. They will do well. They will do well. That's not what the problem, that's not what the problem is. The problem lies in these sort of very corrupt, extremely bureaucratic tourism economies you've got in Southern Europe. They're going to drag mm. along so much of the European budgets. That's well, what, what about also the leadership in the Sweden? Like there are memes on uh, 4chan about Sweden man and things like that. You know, basically, pro, you know, having this but, idea that there's just like, well, you know. Well, if, I, before we get. Like, yeah, 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 go, go ahead. Well, okay, I just want to say that some of the politicians in Sweden. And Elizabeth they, is killing it in the chat. So oh, so. oh, man. You are, <laughs> a chat, you are a chat respecter. The, and the chat respects build, you. Yeah. The chat respects you back. So, uh, and uh, when it comes to these politicians okay, in Sweden, yes, yeah. join our Discord too, by the way. Everybody, go to our Discord. It is in the oh, description of this. Oh, but before you go, yes. I wanted to ask you, because we mentioned the, the, the new the Nouveau Droid, is, is um, in America, it's like this, people think of it as like this collective thing, like French theory. Like, they don't know what the fuck they're talking about, because they haven't, unless you're in a literary department, you don't know. But is is French is sort of like the tradition of French post-structuralism? Is that still a force within French society, or have they moved on intellectually? Like you know, Derrida, Foucault. Well, Badiou is still alive, so that's oh god, yes. Well, <laughs> I, I mean, there are students of of Derrida who now write books against the woke. So yeah, that's a good. That's right. that's right. But we we have the, what's really sad is I'm trying to think, and I honestly, it's possible I completely missed out on. Ooh, nice. Uh, I like compliments. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm 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 not offended by compliments, guy. Uh, but uh, the, the, there are. I mean, the general attitude of the French, and I must say, the nation practically. Basically, much, pretty much, sort of got together when the New York Times and the Washington Post started insulting them. And the idea was, first of all, you people do not even understand Derrida and 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 Foucault, and we have better reasons to dislike them than you have to like them. And you yeah. don't make any of the points. Uh, but we. You have an extreme left and they are buying their stuff solid from the United States. And by the way, I would like to really complain. I have been doing this to everyone uh, for this, this thing called the Young Leaders Program, which was organized by the State Department over the years, where they bring young people to demonstrate to the various countries where they pick those promising young people that they know more about their intellectuals and their young people than the, the, the country itself does. And these people have create and they bring them to America. I got somebody at the State Department to tell me how it worked in two or three weeks where they go to all sorts of places they meet nobody who works in the private sector and they have essentially they they meet representatives of what the uh uh reçu are in in academia and in the civil service or in america now a long time ago uh, a program like that is really to me it was a prophetic of what became afterwards in 19 i think 
47 or 48 in Egypt, the State Department decided to invite and um, to give a, a scholarship to a young Egyptian student to go to the University of Colorado. And that young student was Said Qutub. And Said Qutub is one of the founders, he was the, the son of one of the founders of Muslim Brotherhood in the 20s. Yeah, that's right. They were educated. It's give, like Fanon was educated by Satra, right? So that's And he went, to, he went to Colorado. And the whole point was to show him the wonderful, bountiful goodness of America, which quite honestly, I myself feel, you know, it's wonderful. But the thing about Said Qutub, of course, was that he looked at it and he said these people are heaven they have women who walked in the street with bare arms uh, and and they dance in churches you know and he came back and and um, he redoubled his efforts for the muslim brotherhood french students were sent to the same kind of universities at the same time and they would say these people are complete sort of reactionary bigots where do they hold their dancers in churches <laughs> so you can read two and people, and I, well, that's the thing. thing the american the american right is sort of like they have and I don't mean to say this like disparaging like y'all Qaeda or whatever, but they do have like, they should have canned the anti-Muslim thing. Like this is what I mentioned Michelle Hulbeck because the, the American right wing, they, they totally screwed themselves with this anti-Muslim thing. And they really should have looked at the intellectual history of, you know, organizations like the Muslim Brotherhood or like uh, Hezbollah. And it's like, that is, that is your religious nationalism right there. I hate this. I mean, that's, and you know, if they would have, if they would have know. integrated it, they would have called themselves Yal Qaeda. Yal Qaeda. <laughs> but no, but I, I wanted to ask all, all four of you, um, th this is really great. Anna, we have to get you on again. I mean, I could talk all day about French intellectual history. I am—I consider myself a right Foucault. I, I, even I agree, on. and so will I. I'm slaughtering, yes, and I'm please. doing my own books, for God's sake. Yes. Yeah. I have, I have more people to bring in yes. from Paris, because there are, there are lone souls in Paris, and I'd like to bring them in. But I, I, at some stage, I have to go because I have a long piece to write. Yeah. She's probably going yeah. to be during the night. And then tomorrow morning at 9, I'm getting my jab. Ooh. Oh, oh no, hey. no. <laughs> First we, we have to bring you on. We have to talk about, I wanted to talk about the French art world as well, but yes. that, that's another um, oh. conversation. Absolutely. Oh. But, well, I, well, but before you go, I wanted to ask just really quickly for all the whole panel we could talk about, mm. I guess the last thing it's winding down, but um, I want, I follow this very closely because he is um, a person I've studied fastidiously for the past years so um what do you think of Giorgio Agamben's criticisms of the lockdowns from his very much French post-structuralist perspective um talking about how we are creating the states of exception and so forth well I, I don't know if you I mean Alexander you obviously well, have I, I'm, not sure blog I posts. I'm not sure I caught the name I'm not sure I caught the name um Giorgio Agamben yeah. yeah I don't I don't think people care I don't in think the people chat, care at all chat. I, I, yeah. Yeah. so I, Somebody uh, type it in the chat. Yeah, okay. Oh, here, oh, here, here yes, is yes. Uh, Giorgio Agamben. Here, here he is in the chat. So I, everybody see. Yeah. I actually do not know him. Oh, okay. Uh, wow, that's surprising. Okay, okay. He's, he's an Italian. He's an Italian who tries to be an Italian Foucault. So there you go. Yeah. <laughs> Italian Foucault. Yeah. <laughs> that's yes. That we have that we have civil liberties issues. Uh, we do have, and they started before lockdown. They started with the with the Charlie and the killings and 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 the Bataclan killings, and yes. the fact that at the same time I'm in favour of, of you know catching the bastards and making it possible for them to reproduce. But um, I'm also worried at the fact that we have slid slowly and. 
comfortably into accepting uh, um, a situation which I'm, I don't, I'm not sure is entirely sort of uh, visible to people who say, right, this is necessary. And I don't think we're turning into fascism. I think fascism is really something different and it's got to do with Castro-Oil. But you have people like the fairly left-wing, but you know, moderate left-wing barrister, Francois Sureau, who's also a great novelist, who has written two books about civil liberties in France, and I think he's got a point. And so the question is, how do you how do you manage how do you manage all of this? And I'm, I think the French state itself is also exhausted. You've seen this with the, the uh, br brutal handling of the yellow vest, which had to do with bad policy, more than the decision to kill, you know, mm -hmm. to harm people. Uh, and it's it's part of this. I mean, we we we. Uh, when you look at those dispositions in which people say the Patriot Act, we've had the Patriot Act in France for quite some time. It's just mm. not called that mm. way. Wait, j j real real quick, were there UN police? in um france during the gilet jaune riots that were happening i don't remember right now it could be a false implanted memory but were there uh, eu police in that area that were not part of france or no i think there was a fake uh, a fake meme in which uh, there was something completely unrelated which mm, were actually made i see I, yeah i would i would add that what i think is going to happen is that the corona pandemics is still taking all the headlines and that's what we're discussing here as well but I think what's going to happen is that these sort of old style intellectuals like Giorgio Gambin and Alan Badiou are going to be completely relevant by 2023, 2024. I think the webcast and the podcast culture, oh, I think no. the fact that discourse, discourse has moved to YouTube, this is going to move to online all over Europe too, just like in America. I think it's a whole new landscape, intellectual landscape we're looking at yeah. by 2024, 2025. BTR is the future. Well, and, and, I, and I think these old men or whatever who are 80 years old and they write a newspaper column once a year Listen, are completely I'll redundant. Alexander, I have to I have to disappoint you for a second, okay? Yeah. Uh, and Lev, please post it in the chat my article I wrote for I am seventeen seventy six. I successfully, in my opinion, linked. And it's about internet citizenship and how censoring people on a sort of decentralized platform uh, all at once. I successfully linked the writings of Giorgio Agamben and yourself, Alexander. I managed to merge your writings on. Uh, the netizen, the netocrat, and Giorgio Gomez's analysis of power. So oh, there you go. I hate to inform you, but I, I hope you read it. And uh, <laughs> please, please send I me will. the link. I will. Please send me the link, Gio, right now. I'll put it in I'm the BTR chat. Please, yes, please, um, yeah. please put it in the, the chat. The only problem, the only problem is that when I go online, I'm not sweet as Michel Foucault. I'm rather <laughs> Europe's Thaddeus Russell. That's the way. <laughs> oh, I mean, oh yeah. there you go. And uh, and and because when you come back, those are the new intellectuals. Yeah. And. Uh, and when you come back, I would also love to talk about Russia's influence as well, because I think that people on, uh, you know, our, our side of Twitter over here, apart from myself, they tend to look at Putin as being like this great strong man who would bring back order. I think that's absolute bullshit. Personally yeah. speaking, no, okay. And, uh, the, the no, left. No. <laughs> he is the second principle of thermodynamics. You know, entropy. Basically, yeah, that's what he yeah, yeah. He doesn't have an people... he doesn't even have an exit. I mean, since he doesn't have an exit, that's why he's still in power. That's how weak he is. That's Putin for you. I think that people that's want Putin too. to be you can the, do both. The, the like the modern day Joseph de Maistre, but I don't know if that's going to. I mean, okay. Russia has structural. Andres, <laughs> a bientôt. <laughs>
Thank you oh, so you much, Hannah thank Elizabeth, you so much. for coming in. I and really... thank you, too. Thank you, too. Thank you. Thank well. you so much. I, I, I love this. I love these conversations. This They're has been great. Always. Thanks yes, a lot. Yes, I really appreciate everybody for coming in. And I think this is pretty much the end. So thank you so much. Andrej, I would love to hear Good. more from you uh, as well in the future. I really appreciate you coming in. Oh, I'm very fascinated. I'm very fascinated by Japan. And out of curiosity, were you ever uh, a fan of like a lot of the idol culture there? When it comes to like the Japanese singers, you know, like all, all well, that no, stuff? No, I have to admit, not it's not my not my um, cup of tea. <laughs> the anime. Yeah. Do you, do you like I a very, bit of... I have very, very, very conservative, traditional um, taste in culture. And and uh, I have not much, uh, no, my... Well, um, to, to be I, honest, I, I mean, almost identical to Roger Scruton. So, oh, well, <laughs> oh nice. Well, but, but, in, but in that same vein, I think you would be surprised when it comes to anime. I think the reason why a lot of people on this side of Twitter, uh, you know, people who are dissatisfied with a lot I know of the about extreme it. I mean, leftism, of course, of course. like, I think the reason why they gravitate to manga and anime is because they do see some kind of a traditionalist, some kind of a. Uh, you are completely correct. Like Absolutely, you are right. Yes, yes, this is completely true. I mean, I, I do actually know about this. You know, actually, wherever I go in Poland, people immediately ask me about anime and manga. So. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, a, well, I'm a huge fan of Japanese purisu, uh strong style wrestling. So I don't know. Oh, yes, well, yes, yes. <laughs> yes. Oh, and people are asking, Pilos asks if you, uh, um, uh, he wants me to ask you about Mishima and uh, what your thoughts Yuki, are on Yuki Mishima. Mishima. <laughs> well, but I mean, it's, I, I can't say, you inf inf I can't, I can't, uh, in even five minutes, uh, say anything that, sensible about Mishima. It's quite, it's really, really a long <laughs> conversation. Yes, well, I would love to have you back to talk about some uh, Mishima as well. And uh, thank you so much for everybody. I really appreciate you being here. And just real quick to uh, promote everybody here. Everybody knows Alexander Bard, obviously. There was no question about that. But still, guys, if you are not following Alexander Bard on Twitter, you are missing out. Here it is, Bardissimo. I love that name, Bardissimo over here. So go <laughs> here to Bardissimo, follow him on Twitter. And, uh, of course, follow everybody on Twitter that we had today. Here we have the account of... Uh, here, let me put this uh, up. Uh, I had a great conversation with Gareth afterwards on Twitter. Everything is great with Gareth, and I really appreciate uh, him uh, coming in today. And, of course, uh, over here we have uh, Ronan McRae. Everybody follow Ronan McRae on Twitter as well. Here is his Twitter link. And now let us go to Akaz33, so that's you, Andres. What, what does that mean? Oh, well, of course, Andres Kozlowski. Thank yes. you so much, Andres, for coming in. And here is your and Twitter. I will say that I think that there has been uh, real cases of abuse in, in England. But, I mean, he is, I mean, it, it is always a sticky point because if it's being used for purposes, I mean, I don't know. I, 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 I've changed my opinion a lot on the, the Islam thing since, you know, when I first mm. read Mark Stein in 2000, uh, I was like 13 years old. I read America alone, but I feel that that's sort of like neocon anti-Muslim thing is a thing. I don't know. It's, it's really, mm. I, in some ways we have to protect them against uh, Western liberalism, <laughs> but uh, that's, well, that's maybe we could have another stream about that. Yeah, that would be very interesting. And again, like, 
I want to we respect could bring, people well, who We have, have Moran in the chat. Who, well, of course. Well, we have Moran, yeah. but also we have Mr. Banana Duck, who I hope will uh, come in as well. He's from Egypt, and that, that would be a great oh, stream to have. Yeah. But in a way, like, I mean, I do respect a lot of these different cultures for, again, like, these are really long traditions that have been passed on. The question to me is not even what's going on right now. It's more of, like I said before in the stream, what is going to happen 50 years from now, 100 years from now, as far as are there going to be certain sections of countries that will just become like their own thing? And maybe we could say, oh, well, what's wrong with that? But still, I guess it goes to the point that I believe that people are more malleable in the sense that there are better traditions that people can imbue. I mean, even the Japanese. I mean, let's not forget World War II, the horrible things that uh, the Japanese were doing back then to the prisoners of war. And uh, after, um, you know, after what happened, happened. Uh, today, Japan is a very different country, I think. At least, I don't know. Like, Andres, I'm curious to... Uh, kind of like have have this uh, final thing over here because uh, it is on my mind. Do you think that Japan today, in terms of the mentality of the people, is different than it was uh, during uh, World War II when it comes to... Or even like during the 80s, for instance. Yeah. Well, yeah. Of course it's different. I mean, it's, uh, <laughs> it's actually, I think there are very few countries which, are not, uh, which haven't changed since World War II. Uh, uh, so this is, of course, true. On the other hand, uh, you know, um, the, I myself would say this is a complicated matter that the Western view of what Japan was like, or the common view uh, during, during World War II, is also uh, somewhat oversimplified. And I mean, uh, this itself is a, <laughs> is, a, is, a, is a long topic. So, mm -hmm. of course, in this fundamental respect, the idea that Japan would actually go back to the uh, to, to to this um, what it attempted to do uh, before World War II is very is extremely unlikely. Besides, there is a situation is completely different because now Japan has a completely different situation geopolitically. It is now uh, a, na a neighbor of one of the world's world superpowers, and it is the biggest problem it has. It's completely not in a position to uh, to even. Uh, say dream of going back to to, to the situation that of the 1930s, for example. Well, but of well, course, uh, but you know, well, on the other hand, you should yes. never forget that one generation people can in one generation people can change very dram dramatically. Sure. I mean, this is what we are seeing, in fact, everywhere. Yeah, and, 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 then, and this is why I would keep an open mind for people who think that people cannot change. That I think people can change if there is a right amount of positive influence to, you know, in terms of education or and negative. things of that nature. Or negative, that's right. So that's that's primarily my concern when it comes to a lot of these issues of migration. I don't know how things are going migratory-wise in Japan, but uh, there has been the whole thing about, uh, you know, the, this concern that people have about making sure that things don't change in the negative. And I like things to change in the positive, and who doesn't? I mean, that's like, ob obviously people want to change things in the positive. One other thing that I want to mention is that People, at least here in the U.S., the reason why they look up to somebody like Mishima, for example, is I don't think their lives are that exciting in their in their view uh, versus going to be a samurai, you know, fighting with the swords. Modern or... American life. Yes, yes, yes. The burger speak, life. I mean, I mean, Mishima spoke to the malaise that he felt was happening in, in Japanese society at the time, and how the sort of uh you know the new reality of like this well, market driven society right so 
There is an alternative view that actually a lot of what Mishima said was more to do with Mishima himself. But yeah, <laughs> well, yeah, that's yeah. true. Yeah. As I think it does to a lot of people, people are always fighting an internal battle with uh, their own laziness and their own shortcomings. Well, that's oh, what he he overcame yeah. his. That's his whole point. Yeah. Is he overcame his physical limit and, and he, even he didn't have the best leg. He didn't have the best legs, so he made people photograph him from the bottom up. But uh, also, lastly, Martin K. Everybody follow Martin K. on Twitter. I want to make sure Martin that you also have uh, get a word in edgewise over here uh, right before we finish up. So let me know what you thought of the stream and any any final thoughts on uh, the conversations that, nice. that we had. I was just sitting on my hands when they were talking about uh, Birmingham and immigration and stuff, but uh, otherwise, good. Excellent. <laughs> oh, I missed all these chat topics over here. So and this uh, is what happens I got to get into the down. point, too, that I'm also very, very mm, anxious about what's going to happen with the Muslims in Europe. And I think they need to be saved both from liberalism and angry Europeans when times get worse. And well, I things... come from a very much uh, immigrant neighborhood. Mm -hmm. I grew up with like 50% immigrants at my school from my childhood, most of them Muslims. So <clears throat> I think I can relate quite, a, quite much to what they go through and will go through in the future if things don't change. Would you say that they see like some, uh, even though they're surrounded by a lot of, let's say, Western entertainment do they still have some kind of a connection to let's say tradition like they value yeah, yeah. the family Very and all that so yeah i Very mean again so. like so. i'm i'm not opposed to that in many ways they are to... better suited also than europeans because they actually take care of their own yeah they take care of their uh, grandparents you put them in a nursing homes and leave them it's a disgrace it's horrible i mean so i mean same so, thing over yeah. here with my family i mean maybe maybe it's because i come from like a like a russian jewish family uh, i don't know if that has something to do with it but we would we would be so shocked when we would see you know people who live in old folks homes like where's your why aren't you with your family what's going on here and i think italians yeah. same thing this is why a lot of jews and italians marry uh you know intermarry i think that also has to do with that Probably. kind of thing and i think that's also like why people talk about like how come like trump and biden like they're marrying like uh you know their kids are marrying jewish people i think because it's a safe bet if you have a family that uh, cares about family and I think we're going to well, be seeing a lot more of that. No, 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 but it's something that I know it's on people's minds. I know it's on people's minds, but I just want to say here, it's like that is a great explanation. It's something I think people ignore how important it is to have uh, families that care about each other and spread yeah. that out so that we don't have this weird situation like in america where people are completely isolated for from their roots and again yeah, like me I talking as somebody who's a lot with my yeah. immigrant friends and they all say the same they're in shock especially the ones that came here like in their late third 20s 30s the last 10 years and they already were grown up men with children and real jobs before they came here and they see this shit now and they most of them have taken their families with them, so now their parents are in the age where they get sick, and mm -hmm. they're horrified, truly horrified. Well, and I the understand last... them, and yeah. also they are among the most uh, outspoken about immigration too, because at least like the ones I grew up with, they are most second generation, and they see 
the problem with just the masses not ever stopping coming. And yeah. they see the rug pulled out from under them again. In terms the, of the prayer rug pulled for, out from them. The low wages. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, and, and again, my... when you have uh, Shia Muslims coming first and then Sunnis. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, my, my whole thing is, again, going back to the kind of program that people are on, what exactly it will lead to down the road. So not so much about people not caring about their families, it's more about like, what is the structure of society going to look like as far as how, you know, how things are done, you know, how um, education is spread and in what way. I think these are very important questions where, like I said before to Ronan, there could be ideally countries out there like Saudi Arabia or like other Middle Eastern countries that could be, you know, that could be improved and could be a great home, you know, because now yeah. there seems to be a very, like, a lot of inequality when it comes to these big Muslim nations. They have all these rich people there that drive their Lamborghinis and Ferraris and whatever, and and yet there wow. are so many poor people in uh, the Muslim world as well. I, th I hope that there could be an improvement there where they would be able to reside with, uh, you know, similar culture and enjoy the fruits of that for themselves while, uh, you know, being able to have uh, communications with and trade with and mutual respect for cultures that would do things a little bit differently. Yeah, Muslim unity is uh, <laughs> not going to happen, I think. Well, it's, not uh, among the Shia and the Sunnis, and I mean, that's uh, a whole it's a whole bag of worms not, right not there. Not even within, but uh, they should be small, different nations, all of them, and try to live in peace in that way. Sure. Yeah, I'm definitely not opposed to that. Uh, but I'm talking about more in terms of like help for refugees or people. Yeah, who, yeah I understand. Know. And as smaller and more functioning nations than they are now, they could probably take in refugees. But they've got I a lot of room them in many ways. <laughs> I mean, I understand them in many ways. They really don't have the infrastructure, anything mm. to take on refugees in the, these countries. Like you can't well, send refugees from Yemen to. Yemen too, basically. It's not going to happen. And it's not going to go well. But they do have those facilities in Saudi Arabia. Again, this is just like one example, so I'm not going to say Saudis that this takes care of it. But, but yeah, They're not going to do it. They import slave labor instead. That's yeah, a lot too, of uh, Game of Thrones shit going on there. So yeah. no good. The well, whole uh, soccer or world soccer cup coming up, it's a total shit show. Yeah. Only slave labor... Yeah, not, not not great. It's there bad. needs to be a positive. There needs to be a positive. But I had a point about the EU. Also, yes, by the way, go for uh, it. The EU. Go for it. I'm not in opposition to the idea of the EU as a uh, common market, uh, having a power balance to the US and stuff like that. But in practice, that's not what it is. So I can't support it anymore, in a way. And it's rotten to the core, as Alexander said, and. Uh, totally incompetent and too many different interests and it's not going to work but well, the idea of having a common northern european front culture and don't just import american culture and academia that's a good thing that i hope will come out of it in years to come i think so maybe we'll uh, bring back uh, mithraism We'll see what happens. I want to get Giorgiani on the show as well. Talk with Bart. Mm. That would be we exciting. We should add the uh, Nicolas Soldon, like to have the nationalist pro EU point. He's yeah, we, we tried that. to get Nicolas Salo, but uh, uh, we'll <laughs> I've been discussing happens. it with him well, a couple times. Well, there's going to be. Oh, really? Him, but, Maybe you uh, could suggest him coming on. I don't the, know. Uh, just on Twitter. Just on Twitter. But uh, uh, yeah. 
he's very good on that, and uh, I respect oh, uh, his oh, views a lot. Even oh, and by I'm the way, to, to the comment of to the comment of Andrea, Saudi Arabia is a desert. Well, Israel was also a desert until they figured out a way to make it not a desert anymore. So uh, there are ways of going about that. It just requires by stealing land from the Palestinians. Lev, that's oh man. Way. Okay, we're we're gonna we're gonna have an Israel episode. <laughs> we're, we're gonna have an Israel have to, episode. Oh my God, an Israel episode. Oh, that would be that would be a lot of fun. That'll be, but, a, that'll oh. be the suicide. <laughs> Stream? I'll be in oh. chat for that one for sure. Oh boy. Okay. So anyway, here here's what we have coming up, guys. So we have um, Tuesday, March sixteenth. Uh, John Stokes, who is the founder of Ars Technica, he has confirmed he is coming on, and along with him, we are going to have Andrea Seabrook. She is back. We are going to have Catherine Brodsky. She is back. We are going to have Indian Bronson. He is back as well. On okay, a very interesting thing is happening Thursday, March eighteenth. We are going to have an event where two people are going to make the argument for the other person's position. So this one is going to be ANCAP versus Nationalist, and we are going to have Hero Alchemy. Uh, he is going to be uh, with us over there, and he is going to be going against uh, a very interesting character, a very great guy who we have had on a previous podcast. I want to get his Twitter right here to show everybody one second here. He is known as Liberty Lockdown, and uh, he is going to be coming in with us with uh, Hero to basically make the argument for... Like, Liberty's going to make the argument for the nationalist side, and Hero is going to make the argument for the uh, anarcho-capitalist side. I love you too, Miran. I love you too. I love you too, Miran. Get, get BB. Well, uh, back in the day, there was this... Uh, I won't mention his name because he has since become a backstabbing turncoat piece of shit, uh, Michael Corrin. Uh, Michael Cor but um, in Canada, he actually <laughs> interviewed uh, BB Netanyahu when he was a neocon... The, this person, uh, Michael Corrin, the um, backstabbing piece of shit. Uh, no, sorry. Um, but I, yeah, so maybe we could get Bibi Netanyahu on the stream and he will go up against, uh, I don't know, we'll have a Hezbollah activist on with Bibi. Just that would be amazing. I, I like, I like Pilos's comment. Bibi's son Is seems quite based sometimes. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, Bibi, I think he is, he does harbor some based opinions, but. We'll, we'll see. Yeah, uh, I talked about his son too. His son is on Twitter and he tweets a lot sometimes. Yeah, we, maybe we'll shit. get him on as well. So, Pilos. Bibi I like, I like Pilos' comment. Israel's stream will be BTR's grand finale. <laughs> oh it would so basically, it would, yes, we will invite on. Um, who, who it, would, could we it, it would be the uh, the Samson option. Uh, it would be the Samson option of BTR. We would have like a black Hebrew Israelite <laughs> and we will have on like Jared Taylor. And then we will also have on like, um, who would be like a big Israeli pro. We got to we'll have we on like an Israeli, it. like a Christian Zionist. We'll have on like, uh, yes. Uh, Mark Stein we got to have people oh, from uh, Chabad over you know Chabad oh uh, Chabad yeah Lubavitch. yeah so uh, uh clubhouse oh. I'm gonna I'm gonna meet some of them clubhouse, from clubhouse. It up. yes it'll be, so it'll be the Samson option of BTR that exactly as like right when the meteor is about to strike the earth that's when we do the stream <laughs> so okay stream. Tuesday March 23 <laughs> Sean Lang is coming back with us that's oh, gonna be a great show and uh, Grit Cult, Thursday, March 25, Tuesday, March 30th, we are talking about Warhammer. And, of course, we are going to have Noah's Hugbox 
MK Ultra Money Remus is coming back with us as well, and we're going to have a few more guests talking about uh, the subject of Warhammer, that you can have a painted figure of from the great Jules P. Hamilton if you become a patron on patreon.com slash break the rules for $50. But let's just go down the tiers real quick. My father is working hard on making some beautiful magnets for you people, so you better become a patron today, right now. Just go there right now, type it in, patreon.com slash break the rules here. I'm going to type it in for you. Uh, you know, because you could be lazy sometimes, and I still love you. But anyway, here, this is the Patreon link. Go into the Patreon link, become a patron today, become a patron right now. Five dollars gives you access to audio record recordings of all our past streams in the feed, and it comes out before all the other uh podcast players uh have it on. After that, you are going to also uh, have access to our super secret area of our Discord. Although you can become a Discord member at any time, this also allows you to be able to um, write messages inside of BTR chat in the Discord as well as post images, which you could also do by becoming a citizen, but that requires gaining our trust so that you don't post uh, naughty things on there. So anyway, uh, that that means that you have to be more of a part of our BTR community so that we know who you are. Go to our Discord, become a member of that community right now. I'm going to type it in as well. It is in the description, but for those who don't want to go down the description, here it is. Here is the link for that. Anyway, $20 patrons are going to get the magnets. Get these magnets. They're beautiful, and there's going to be a um, puffed up, an, an inflated lioness magnet, as well as a magnet of definitely legit. These two are being done right now, and there may be multiple copies of them as well on the way. $30 gets you the great print from Giovanni Panicchietti, uh right here so let me uh let me load that up real quick over here where here it is patreon print look at him go look at geo go these are very beautiful mm. prints so be sure to become a patron 30 dollars tier gives you gets you these beautiful prints and again 50 dollars gets you all of the above as well as some bonuses you are going to get a completely custom magnet whatever the hell you want my father is going to create it for you also, you are going to get another painting from Geo, beautiful Bob Ross-style painting. And uh, like I mentioned before, Jules is going to paint uh, a figure for you. And uh, what else? I think that's pretty much it right now. But again, more new things are coming on the horizon. I'd love to have a BTR meetup uh, later on, maybe this year, maybe next. We're working on it. We're going to see what's crackalacking in that department. But anyway, guys, this is pretty much it. This is the end of the stream. I want to thank everybody for being here. Be sure to join us next week, starting from uh, Tuesday. And we are going to be continuing the ride. I appreciate all of you. And uh, Pilo says, can I get a handmade magnet of inflation? Well, that's what's going on. Yes, Pylos, if you become a $20 uh, um, member of our Patreon, you are going to have the uh, Nala Magnet. But I highly recommend you become a $30 so you also get Geo's print. But anyway, guys, this is it. This is the end of the show. I appreciate all of you. This was a really fascinating conversation, and I look forward to having many more conversations like these in the years to come. We are growing thanks to your support. Be sure to subscribe, 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 and subscribe right now to keep us going, keep us growing, and I really value all of you guys.